Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, 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 bass. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I ain't no size two, but I can shake it, shake it like I'm supposed to do. Hello, and welcome back to Callum and David's Any Requests podcast. This is, of course, our weekly Patreon-requested podcast where you, the listener, can donate £5 a month and get us to do a podcast on absolutely anything you want. That is entirely correct. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Mm. we did quite an epic two-part podcast all about the best rhythm guitarist. I was going to say it was our first two-part episode, but then I remembered the problem at Gallows Gate, but oh, I think I've just yeah. tried to erase that from my memory. <laughs> that, that's a really traumatic yeah. episode of Jonathan it, Creek for you. It is. It um, is. Back in the day yeah. when it was all about Creek, uh, it is still about Creek in mm. our hearts. Yeah. Um, but now, subject matter-wise, yeah, we seem to be getting quite a lot of musical requests, which I really, really like. Yeah. Um, and we had some great feedback uh about that two-parter for the guitarists for thank you for that but we've got quite a similar uh, episode this week absolutely yes so we are back with our long-time supporter and very close friend tristan who has requested um apropos of a conversation we were having via whatsapp uh a few weeks ago um that i'll get into later because it's uh, it will become clear um he <laughs> uh has asked for quite specifically our top five most underappreciated bass lines in music. I mean, this is very specific. Yeah. Um, And again, it felt, uh, I think when we were kind of investigating it, it felt not only would it be sensible, but also fitting Mm -hmm. to invite back our favourite guest uh, musicologist and uh, good, good friend, Josh Benfield. Welcome. Thank you very much, guys. Good to be back with you both. Lovely, lovely to have you here. Good to have you back. Good to have you back. And um, it's Josh's birthday as well. So this is um, essentially a present from us to you that you get to spend your evening on your birthday talking to us about music. I would have it no other way. (laughs) (laughs) I would uh, suggest we sing you happy birthday. But for anyone who hasn't sung happy birthday on Zoom before, you'll know why that's a really bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's avoid that. (laughs) <laughs> Great to have you back. Um, all right, so the most underappreciated bass lines. We're not just talking yeah. about bass players. We're talking about bass lines yeah. uh, and, uh, in music. And I think all of our choices have been uh, contemporary as opposed to classical. Yeah, um, I, I think actually all five of mine occur within a 15-year time period from 1980 to 1995 um so i i haven't been quite as wide-ranging as i was certainly in in my uh rhythm guitar uh um picks but yeah i think just before we get into the list just i I think we should have a little bit of conversation about how we each kind of approach this now me personally i basically took underappreciated to mean kind of not in the mainstream consciousness so i've got one coming up later who among music circles musicologist circles people that are really into music you would probably go absolutely what are you talking about underrated or underappreciated but also i would argue that people that weren't into music have probably never heard of this person's name before so i've kind of gone along that line of in fact i actually i think i was saying to you callum kind of when this came about for me i actually think that you can actually count on one hand the number of kind of iconic 
bass parts that the general populist who aren't music nerds like us would go oh yeah that's a really famous song because of its bass line mm-hmm. i.e money by pink floyd or the chain by fleetwood mac yeah. um but actually i think once you get past those few i, I think actually it's quite wide open uh, yeah i completely agree um and i think that's quite interesting when you when you when we think uh back to you know when i was uh, learning instruments and, and playing in rock schools and garage bands uh, often with josh you know there was a conversation about being a good uh, a good rhythm guitarist uh, as we discussed being a good bass player being, being a good drummer you know it's all about discipline and knowing when not to play as much as when to play so often uh, good music doesn't necessarily mean oh yeah we're going to completely uh, kind of key into that bass part uh, josh i think you'd, you'd probably a- agree and maybe you've had some memories of our of our time together as teenagers in rock schools uh, yeah i mean we were quite fortunate to be honest because we had a really really good bassist if you remember ben dodd yeah he was a brilliant bass player and was a very unselfish bass player as well so i think we had good experiences with bassists sometimes you don't have good experiences with bassists when they are just a guitarist who's been given a bass guitar yeah absolutely and I, I think um i think it takes a bit of time and i mean i know you play both guitar and bass um but you'd probably describe yourself as a guitarist first and foremost right uh i'd describe myself as a frustrated bassist <laughs> <laughs> oh that's really interesting yeah uh, is that because you you uh you you learned guitar first and and therefore kind of have a better aptitude for that um is it to do with you know the the size of the bass the fingers <laughs> <laughs> well do you know okay so i don't want to bring up your short of... fingers but i know you're a sensitive <laughs> <about it. laughs> yeah i have really really short fingers so actually um uh probably growing up there was probably an element of bass guitar that was actually a little bit challenging mm-hmm. uh but then saying that no i don't think so i think more because i played guitar just because that was like what i grew up playing um, and I never really realised about basses, about how interesting it is, because I mean, a lot of when you grow up um, in like garage bands and like the kind of bands we were in, um, you're more likely to find a bassist who's just going to hit the root notes and play four, four notes per bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in the era we were growing up in, because there was a lot of bassists in kind of pop punk and ska punk, which has some brilliant bassists. But I would say that that wasn't necessarily as obvious to, to us growing up. And then uh, I actually think my love of bass really comes from the fact of just what you can do with it and how it's that bridge between the, the drums and between the melody lines, whether it's piano or guitar or even vocals. The, the scope for, for, for what a bass can do within a song, I think is wider um, than any other instrument um, in terms of the impact it can make. Um, and also on the flip side, I love the fact that a bass can just fly completely under the radar until you tune into it. And then once you tune into it, you're just often a brilliant bass line makes you, you know, in awe. And some of the bass lines I think that I've picked are definitely in that vein. Um, but I think a lot of the bass lines I've picked are a bit more in the, in the, in the, in the first kind of statement I was saying where bass can really fulfill a purpose that um, is interesting and full and replicates or, or fits in around some more traditional melodic instruments. So, you know, there's a lot to do on bass that you can't do on other instruments. On on your second point, I have to say, when I was listening to your picks, there's one pick that you did in particular that I think I had to play 
like three times before I could actually hear the bass part in it. But then once I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, this is great. Mm. But it's very low in the mix. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Um, yeah, there are loads of points I could pick up on there, but I I, um, I suspect we're going to touch upon them as we move through. Um, so we, we looked at this um, the same way we did uh with the rhythm guitarists um although being more specific as a request it is a little bit easier to kind of dig into individual bass parts and dig them about rather than the whole careers yeah of uh bass players um but we did pick five uh bass lines that we believe are underappreciatedly good yeah uh, that's a weird way of saying that but um you get it uh so do you want to kick us off dave with yeah. our first uh with your first choice yes so my first choice is really the catalyst of of why we're doing this podcast in the first place because i text tristan about this specific song and when and i think i text you as well josh at the same time and when i've never noticed how good the baseline in this song is um <laughs> and tristan texts back and went oh my god that needs to be a podcast my next one i want you to do most underappreciated baselines so i thought it's only fair that i include it now in my research for this song i have uncovered that what you are hearing in this song is a synthesizer and not a bass. <laughs> so my first pick for underappreciated bassline is not even a, a bass. Um, it's 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 a mini moog that has been uh, programmed to sound like a bass guitar. Um, but it is "Cruel Summer" by Banana Rama, um, nineteen eighty three track. Um, Banana Rama, of course, uh, famous kind of it was almost the sort of I guess proto girl band really. Yeah. Um, certainly in this yeah. country. Um, uh, yeah, uh, made up of Sarah Dallin, Siobhan Fahey, and Karen Woodward, formed in 1979. Now, what's even more funny about the fact that this isn't a bass in this song is the fact that Siobhan Fahey and Karen Woodward were both bassists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This song features no bass. Uh, as I say, being trolled by Banana Rama for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, obviously, it was very famously used um, in the Karate Kid, and yeah. that's now had a real resurgence because of the brilliant Cobra Kai, which everyone should go and watch. It's utterly ridiculous and nostalgically brilliant. And then uh, uh, Kari Kimmel did a really cool, very sort of slow down ethereal cover of it. Um, in Cobra Kai, uh, I think it was the end of season two, um, and and that just met, I'd completely forgotten about that song. Um, in, in fact, this is very weird and and off piste, but um, it's just popped into my brain. My first memory of this song is it was used for um, a trailer for a reality TV show called Cruel Summer that was on Trouble TV on Sky. Wow. Um, now, for those, of you that, <laughs> for those of you who didn't have uh, 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 Sky or like OneTel or the other things you could have in the 90s mm -hmm. that weren't Sky, um, Trouble was like specifically Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, City Guys, like American teen sitcoms, and then this British reality show called Cruel Summer, which was kind of like survivor but in britain in like a seaside town in like a manor house and they all oh. lived there together and that was obviously because it was called cruel summer that was the the uh song they used and i'd never heard that song before and i went oh this is quite a cool song 
Um, well, I think now I'm less interested in, in baselines. I'd want to start a petition to bring back Cruel, Cruel Summer. Bring back Cruel Summer. I was just bring back Trouble TV in general because it's a defunct channel now. It was great. <laughs> great. Hang Time. That was another great show uh, about uh, American... I remember Hang Time. Yeah, American high school students that played basketball. That was good. Um, and their manager was played this is the hang time podcast you just about to say you're listening to <laughs> any requests okay yeah the important thing to note though is that he was played by a real uh, retired professional basketball player and he played the coach of the high school basketball team in hang time that is the most important <laughs> bit of information i think uh, so I, think, I mean, um, I, I count on Josh for tangents, right? But come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is it's, an absolute that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, so, yeah, it was written, the baseline that's played on the mini Moog by uh, jo- uh, Jolly and Swain. Steve Jolly and Tony Swain. Now, we don't talk about Steve Jolly anymore because I think he's still in prison for child sex stuff. Right. So not okay. a good person. No. Uh, and I don't endorse him as a person or his behaviour. Um, but they were very prominent um songwriters and producers in the 80s um they worked a lot with imagination ah um, yes yeah uh led by lee john and i said that because <laughs> yeah. he had three e's in his name yeah lee john and uh, not john lee not john lee no no although i think obviously the career of john lee from s love seven is a bit of an homage to lee john it is it's an homage to lee john from imagination um, Wasn't John, uh, John Lee the name of the drummer from Feeder who killed himself as well? Was that his name? John Lee? Oh, I don't Maybe. know. That's taken a turn, though, isn't it? That has taken a turn. Well, we were already, we already took a turn uh, with Steve Jolly. Yeah, um, and also the uh, manager of uh, Imagination is a family friend of mine who died when I was about four. Okay. Um, Brian. Um, okay. Brian okay. Longley. I wasn't expecting that. Tragically, <laughs> fell into the road. Yeah. This really? is. Yeah. This is. This is brilliant. So imagination I mean, that's got a brilliant. lot of. It's not brilliant that he died. I'm very sorry for your loss. Did he did he fall or was he pushed or did he trip? Well, it was a it was a big inquiry, right? Because he fell into the road. That he was hit by a lorry. He was standing by the side of the road, and oh Brian was known to have um, uh, blackouts when he was very stressed, and it happened a couple of times. And he was in the middle of organising a tour for Imagination, a European tour, and he was operating out of his garage, and he just um, had twins. Um, and it was a very stressful time in his life. And he'd nipped out to get um, cigarettes. He spoke, smoked very specific French cigarettes. And he was standing in the road, uh, waiting to cross the road. And there was a lorry driving along. And he's, the lorry driver, who was quite traumatised by it, said he just kind of fell in front of the, the car. So when they said, oh, was it a suicide attempt? And he was like, it didn't look like that. It looked like someone had switched off a light in his brain and he just fell in front of the lorry. So it's really tragic and very uh, unfortunate. Um, also, if anyone uh, hasn't seen Small Axe, the Steve McQueen series, um, Imagination, actually, a young Lee John is, is a character in one of the episodes. Yeah, um, it's really good. As a, yeah, kind of subplot. Um, yeah. Uh, so, band. yes. Um, so, yeah, so Jolly and Swain, Imagination, uh, Banana Rama. They also did True Spandau Ballet, so very, very much that '80s kind of sound. Yeah. Um, and and they wrote the bass part for this, and it's just really funky. And and again, this is this is probably out of my five the the most subtle bass part. This is along the lines of what Josh was saying about that kind of second great thing about bass is is you don't notice it until you listen out for it and. And I wasn't even listening out, but I've heard that song dozens of times. And it just so happened, I, I it came onto a playlist I was listening to the other week. 
and and I think it's because I recently got some new headphones and they're just the the, the equalization's so good that it just picks up the isolated instruments so much better. And I just suddenly heard this really, really cool, funky bass line coming in underneath. Um Very yeah, cool. Shall yeah, we have a listen? Really it. Let's have a listen. Tune, great bass part. Um, interesting about the mood conversation. Again, question for Josh, really. Do you think that that it makes it any less of a bass part, the fact that it was written and, and recorded on a Moog? No, absolutely not. Bass, bass, bass isn't an instrument. Bass guitar is mm. an instrument. Bass is a register. Bass is a, bass is a way of life. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I honestly, I don't think it does. I think, it, I think, if it did, then we'd be discounting some of the best bass lines and most interesting bass music of at least the last thirty years. And the majority yeah. of a majority of music over the last thirty years has been bass orientated, hasn't been written on a bass guitar, and has all been done by synthesizers of some sort, uh, i.e., dance music and, and drum and bass and things oh, like oh. that. I was going to say, you, you think about the genre of drum and bass, which literally has the name bass in in the title, albeit spelt differently. Um, yeah. There is uh, obviously, yeah, a huge uh, importance of the bass sound in that, but very little bass guitar going on in that genre of music. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think there's a bit of, you know, having having worked a little bit with MIDI and, and, and synth, you know, often actually uh, there's something really funky about a yeah. bass line yeah. played on a Moog, yeah. partly because of the percussive nature of a keyboard. Yeah. Um, but also when you think of, you know, tracks by Stevie Wonder. I mean, mm. uh, uh, I was going to talk about I Wish. It didn't make my list. But, you know, um, uh, Higher Ground and, and um, Superstition, you know, using a lot of, of Moog and, and synth stuff there. Because of Stevie Wonder, great yeah. keys player. And all those bass lines were invented and often recorded on, on uh, in the studio, yeah. not, on, not on guitars. Yeah. Um, just before we uh, shoot over to you, Cal, for your first choice, I just wanted to finish off uh, Cruel Summer by um, <laughs> reading... Um, uh, a quote from Sarah Dallin, uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, female artists in Banana Rama, um, said, it was a huge hit in the US. I'll always remember coming out of our hotel in LA where we first became famous and seeing Mike Tyson sitting there. He burst into cruel summer when he saw us. It was unbelievable. Summer songs do that to people. When the sun's out, anything goes. That's, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's the best anecdote ever. <laughs> Um, oh, actually, it's good time we're doing this because we're giving exposure to Bananarama, who have actually um, uh, released an autobiography mm. uh, written by two of the members, um, and they've been promoting it. Uh, you might have seen them on Celebrity Pointless. Um, so yeah, go get their, their autobiography. I can't remember what it's called now, but you know, something probably cool. Some of twenty. Bananarama's in pajamas. Yeah, banana split. That's what I call it. Banana split. Yeah. Great. Yeah. 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 Okay, my turn? Yeah. Yes. All right. Um, my first uh, uh, track um, that I've chosen is one of my favourite songs by this band, one of my favourite songs, probably one of my top 50 songs of all time, maybe top 30. Um, it's it's something that, again, I was exposed to through Josh as well, so maybe I was thinking about it because I knew you were coming on this. Um, but there was a, a time when I must have been about 12 or th probably 13, 
And I came around your house, um, Josh, and you put on uh, a, a new copy of uh, the album Stone Roses by the Stone Roses. Mm-hmm. And on this, um, I fell in love with particularly the track Waterfall. It's a brilliant tune for a hundred different reasons, but I think the bass line is something that really, really sticks out for me. For those of you who aren't Stone Roses fans, um, it's an incredible uh, uh, group of musicians. Um, I, was, I was a young drummer and I was obsessed by uh, the work of Rennie. Um, and also you can't really talk about any of that band without the other. It's a real band where all four members um, create the sound. Um, and you can hear all four instruments uh, and sometimes some others, but really stick out in the mix of that album. Um, and Waterfall is absolutely no exception. Um, played by the amazing Manny um, from Stone Roses, also known for playing with Primal Scream and Oasis. I think he's played with some other um, other bands as well. Ocean Josh. Colour Scene, I think. Did he play with Ocean Colour yeah, Scene? Yeah, I think he did a yeah. tour with them when oh. they were didn't supporting he, someone. Didn't he do a thing as well where him... Uh, Peter Hook and I think Andy Rourke from yeah Smith, free base free base exactly free base, yeah, there, yeah. We there we go yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. brilliant uh, project that didn't fail at all yeah um, yeah but he's a brilliant brilliant bassist and I think you know when when you think of Oasis not a lot of people would go oh yeah the musicianship in Oasis is second to none you think of the songs you think of the attitude um, but what's important is that bands like Oasis really wouldn't exist without the work of the Stone Roses. Often when we think of the term like Manchester, you know, we think of the dance scene and, and um, uh, Happy Mondays um, and the Hacienda. Mm-hmm. But Manchester, like some journalists quote, you know, credit Stone Roses for practically inventing Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, and people like Ian Brown certainly paved the way for Liam Gallagher. Yeah, I mean, if you look at early uh, performances of of uh, Ian Brown, it is just Liam Gallagher's whole performance. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, for sure. W- yeah. Down to the way he plays the tambourine, the way he forms his vowels, the way he puts his hands behind his back, the way he angles the microphone. Um, I'm not saying Liam Gallagher's ripped off Ian Brown for his whole career, but Liam Gallagher's ripped off Ian Brown for his yeah. whole career. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Very well, my I add. I'm, I'm not massively hating on Oasis. I think they're a really important band. It's um, it's it's interesting that I think um, uh, Manny said when when the Stone Roses broke up in I think '96 was it? Um, he said that there are there were only three bands that he thought were good enough to have him as a bassist anywhere in the world. <laughs> really? Uh, and and it was Primal Scream, Oasis, and Jesus and Mary Chain. Uh, um, yeah. And and he was known as being the most humble member of the Stone Roses. So that gives you an idea about what Ian Brown was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's a great documentary on the Stone Roses that follows them around. Actually, I, 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 it might be. I think I might be thinking of Supernova because there's mm. a, a which is the Oasis documentary that has quite a lot of them recording uh, and hanging around with Stone Roses quite a lot. Um, but yeah, they laid the foundations for Britpop that wouldn't that wouldn't exist. Um, and I think actually a lot of Britpop you know, taking a lot of that energy from Stone Roses uh, and and bands like that didn't quite take the musicianship. And that's why I think uh, Stone Roses are worth, and Manny's worth mentioning. Um, because in, in Waterfall particularly, there's something really interesting going on. And Dave and I were talking about it, and Josh, I'd love to hear what you think of this. Um, the the bass line is played really high up. It's like, I think it's the uh, eighth or ninth fret. Um, and... 
it starts with this boom, 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 boom. And it's nothing to do with the guitar part and it's nothing really to do uh, with the vocal line. It kind of sits on its own. And then the drums come in properly and they don't seem to have this full pattern. And then you realise that that is the pattern. And it's a song that over time really falls into place. And I think that the, the fact that also it's a very simple line, I should acknowledge the fact that it's not particularly hard to play. It's not particularly complicated and it repeats the same kind of eight bars, eight bar phrase constantly. But as a result, it's so disciplined and it makes space for these beautiful lyrics and kind of soaring vocals um, that Ian Brown uh, might not be known for by many people when you think of his own solo stuff and tracks like Fear that were huge. Um, but you listen to this album and, and this song particularly, his vocals are incredible. Um, so I think it's a really, really wonderful track, but it's something that does something to me. And after I hear the track, I go away and I'm humming the bass line. Um, David, you were saying that, that actually it's sometimes you'd be forgiven. It's easy uh, to forgive someone for getting the guitar part and the bass line confused at different points. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually one of my picks slightly later on uh, that picks up on that as well. That's quite interesting. And I think that's a mark of, of, of a really great bassist is someone that can actually transform their bass guitar into sounding like a lead and knows how to play up the fretboard. Yeah. And there's something about Manny as well, I think, almost plays his bass parts as like rhythm parts, allowing the guitar um, to really kind of uh, decorate the song. And I, I know you're a huge fan um, of uh, the guitar. Is it John, John Squires? John Squire, yeah. John, John Squire. Squire. Um, Josh, you're a huge fan of his work. Um, I yeah. don't know if you find any sense in what I'm saying there. No, 100%. I think what's really good, and, and it, it links to what David just said as well, is that with Waterfall, the riff is so hypnotic, uh, the guitar riff that the bass has almost comes from the same sensibility. They're both hypnotic, but as you say, not mirroring one another. Mm. And that's really, really, uh, that's a really interesting listen. Um, and again, like you said, then that fits into the drums. They're all doing interesting things. They're coming from the same space, but they're not actually playing the same kind of thing. And so it means that you're getting a lot of kind of polyrhythms and a lot of kind of interesting ideas but they're, they're working together because there's a sense of kind of motivational harmony. It doesn't really make any sense, it's made up. But they, mm. you know, they're, they're, they all, and this comes from a band that played together so much in garages and rehearsed together so much. They knew what each was trying to do and they knew what each needed to do in the track and they let each do that. Um, and I think that's why the Stone Roses are brilliant. And I think where they don't get enough credit is as a band that worked together, they were phenomenal. And what they created really was a great body of work where each musician was impressive, but the sound also was impressive as a whole, even more so. And that can't be said for loads of bands. Sometimes one will overpower another. Um, and with the Stone Roses, that doesn't really happen. And Manny's bass playing is something that feeds in across the Stone Roses oof. Um, but probably actually more in the, in the debut album. Their second album is a bit of a kind of John Squire uh, vanity project in a way. Um, and so Manny's bass isn't quite as, um, I don't think as, as interesting, mm. but in the first record and Waterfall is the shining example, I think, I think it's better. I think it is one of the best examples. Um, yeah, I, th I, I think, um, what, what he could do. I think a really great example of, of, of Manny being, having such a, a unique and kind of iconic sound is if you listen to 
Vanishing Point by Primal Scream, which is the first yeah. Primal Scream album that he appears on. And you listen to pre-Primal Scream, like Screamadelica, Primal Scream, and, and, yeah. and the earlier stuff, there's such a marked difference at how much he changes a band that had already been going for six years mm. and, and changes yeah. their sound. Um, yeah. It is testament, I think, to how anchoring he is as a musician in the bands he plays with. Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. I completely agree. Should we have a listen? Yeah, let's go for it. Here's Waterfall by the Stone Roses from the 89 album Stone Roses. Joshy boy. Okay, so the first one I'm going to go for is, uh, well, do you know what, actually? I didn't answer the question at the beginning of the entire show when I said what I'd thought of for underrated. Yes, So briefly, yeah. underrated, I either took it to be a bass player that was underrated and then mm-hmm. a, an element of their work, and this yep. guy actually probably isn't that, actually. Some of the later ones might be. Uh, and then I either took a bassist who was well-known, prominent, and a more underrated bass song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they were the main two. And then some I took from maybe an underrated genre of bass playing in general. Um, and uh, a lot of what I tried to pick, I tried to use a song as a leaping off point to maybe uh, be able to colour in a little bit more of the history of bass and why it might be underrated. But actually, to be honest, I just picked a good bass line. That was what I was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think the first bass line I'm going to go for is by um, a gentleman called Norman Watroy who was the bassist for Ian Jury and the Blockheads. Uh, and the song I'm going to go for is, there's so many to choose from, but the one I'm going to go for is My Old Man from Ian Jury and the Blockheads. Um, Excellent. And it is, uh, so I, well, should we listen first or should I talk first? Why don't we have a listen? Yeah, we'll have a listen. My old man wore three-piece whistles He was never home for long Drove a bus for London Transport he knew where he belonged Number 18 down to Houston Double-decker, move along Double-decker, move along My man Brilliant. Marvellous. Um, am I right, Josh, in saying he's all, he was also Wilco Johnson's bassist? Uh, I think he may have done, because Wilco Johnson played in the Blockheads. So yeah. He, so there's a good chance he did also reciprocate i think that yeah uh, I've, I, think I've, did. I think he did as well yeah i've got a memory of there being a thing of like the blockheads at some points had two bassists because they couldn't have him when he played with wilco johnson when their tours were on at the same time or something yeah yeah but yeah, yeah. it's um, uh, it's interesting that like the blockheads uh as the kind of often considered and a lot of nizos you know say this they're basically the best rhythm section in the world when you think yeah. about how tight they are got a friend a friend of mine called al twist who you've met who's mm. a, one of the best live bassists i've worked with um and he, his admiration for the blockheads uh and their bass parts is it is phenomenal yeah i mean they are i i when i first came across them was i think 
uh, when I was in my teens, and I think that I had seen a tab for Clever Trevor, which is a Ian Jury song, and the the tab for Clever Trevor is quite understated um, for for Norman Watroy. He tended to play uh, well. He played an array of different bassline styles. He was so good that he he knew when to play and when not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had never heard of it before, and I was actually just quite intrigued by the name Ian Jury and the Blockhead, to be completely honest. <laughs> um, and then I listened to New Boots and Panties and, and various different albums of theirs, and I had like the greatest hits. And it just the musicality of all of the people in the band is absolutely amazing. Um, but My Old Man was the first, I think it was early on in whichever album I was listening to at the time, whether it was the greatest hits um, or one of the others. And the bass line, it pops out to you. I mean, we just heard it, it, it pops out to you straight away. Um, and it's just so. It's just a wonderful bass line, and it is one of those bass lines that you hum, and it's it's so catchy, um, and it just fits in around all the other music so well. Uh, and he is a bassist; has written some amazing bass lines. The reason I picked my old man possibly for the underrated thing, he's not an underrated bassist, I don't think at all. I think maybe in the general populace, but if you've heard of Ian during the Blockheads, then you know that the bass is such a fundamental aspect of the group, mm. and then. But I think the most famous song is often like Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. That is yeah. the one that's most yeah. popular. And the bass line in that is just incredible. He's playing 16 notes the entire way through. It should be an absolute mess, but it's just, it's so wonderfully rhythmical. Whereas with My Old Man, he's just conjured up this kind of funky, it's got some slides, it's got some nice kind of pops and trills. He's using quite a lot of like bass, um, uh, different kind of techniques from the bass guitarist palette as it were so uh, it's mm. it's a really good example and i think because it's got that real melodic edge to it and it sits so nicely in the song um yeah i had to pick it and i and i love the song i think the song's a beautiful song the lyrics are absolutely beautiful um ian jury talking about the relationship with his father and i it's so warming um in a way that the whole song is just great i i think it for me it's a perfect song to to, to listen to from Ian Jury and the blockheads and then jump off into some other stuff of theirs and post punk. There's so many good bases in post punk. Yeah, it's um yeah. Norman Watroy is a brilliant way to begin uh, getting a bit of an education about it. There's something also I think about Ian Jury as you know the lyrics are so important and his presence as a as a as a writer is so heavy in in, in his work with the Blockheads. But it's something that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, look at on paper and go, yeah, this white working class disabled guy with a great sense of humour really needs a funky backing track. Mm. Like, I think the amount of funk that's in the Blockheads is is really yeah. telling. I think that really lifts uh, it out. And that's, you know, hugely down to, to Norman and his bass parts. Yeah, I mean, I I I have to admit, I I was not familiar with this song um, uh, until you sent through your list, Josh. And... One of the things that struck me, I mean, as you said, I, I obviously I knew Rhythm Stick, I knew Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, Reasons to be Cheerful, but this I'd not heard before. And what surprised me was what I got from it was how much it feels influenced by Barra era Floyd. Like when you think of songs like Bike, yeah. that's what immediately came to mind when I um, when I heard this. And I was just like, that, that's not a connection I'd ever thought of before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah right. I, I, really I, I completely agree because it's, it's whimsical. Like the lyrics yeah, are whimsical. That's it. it has yeah, that kind of yeah. It's got that. You imagine someone walking around just talking about it. And you get that from Injury's 
lyrics so often, and then yeah, it's just they're such they're such a good backing band. They were they were such a good backing band. I don't they don't play, I don't think they play as much anymore. But um, yeah, brilliant. Norman Watroy, legend. Excellent, brilliant, marvelous. So well, uh, we're going back to you then. Moving swiftly on, back yeah. to me. Um, What's your second choice, David? Right now, my second choice. Now at the top of this podcast, I mentioned about. Um, one of my picks being questionable. Um, and uh, I think, Josh, you said I was on the fence here with, with this, or, or on, on the line, rather, with this in terms of being underrated or not when I, when I text you about it. But I think my justification is that, as I said at the top, I don't think this is a person that people will know the name of who aren't into bass guitar. This is a person that is phenomenally famous within the world of bass guitar and guitarists in general, and is commonly known as one of the greatest bassists who has ever lived. Um, but most people on the street, if you said, do you know who this person is, I would probably bet money that, that they don't. Um, I mean, there's someone that, for example, on Spotify has about 5,000 followers compared to the tens of millions that people in the mainstream kind of music scene have. So. Um, uh, I'm talking about the song I've picked is called The Sinister Minister by Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, uh, which feature the bassist Victor Wooten. Um, who I know you were talking to me about the other day, Callum. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Victor Wooten uh, is the first bassist I was introduced to by kind of the YouTube uh, kind of, you know, we're, we're Generation YouTube, right? Yeah. And someone sent me a video with Victor Wooten and it blew my mind. I just couldn't, I'd never heard of him before and couldn't tell you what tracks he played on. But he just plays, he gets more out of a bass guitar than anyone I, I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, phenomenal. And he played with Bella Fleck. Um, yes. Who I vaguely, uh, I think I'd vaguely heard of or, or yeah, something. So, uh, yeah, so Bella Fleck is a banjo player, essentially, and, and is very kind of pioneering bluegrass musician. And the band Bella Fleck and the Flecktones are uh, essentially, there's no singer, this is, they're, they're an instrumental band. Um, and the banjo kind of does the work of a lead singer, that's your kind of melody line, and then everything else is fed through. Most of the songs do have ridiculous five-minute bass solos because they've got Victor Wooten, and why wouldn't you when you've got someone that can play that well? I mean, um, if you're interested in really hearing what he can do, listen to a track called Classical Thump, and you've never heard anything like that before. It's a bass player playing a bass as if it's a Spanish guitar, and I, I don't even know how you have the strength in your fingers, the, the dexterity when you're playing an instrument that size. Um, so um, yeah, he, he he refers to his bass as a sitar bass because um, uh, it, it sort of yeah has it has a weird kind of short neck and it's quite um, uh, unusual. Although the bass he played on this track is a Federa nineteen eighty three Monarch Deluxe, um, and uh, yeah, it's just a great, really funky track. Um, and there is of course uh, yeah, this incredible bass breakdown. Um, which is the snippet that uh, we're going to play for you in a minute. Um, it won a Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Performance in 1997, despite the fact the song was released in 1990. And this is because a live video uh, uh, performance of theirs from 1990 
got like uncovered by VH1 and then got played in 97 on repeat on VH1, so much so that the Grammys recognised it as being a popular song of that year, even though it was a live recording from seven years previously and it won the Grammy that year. Um, and I think there was a bit of controversy about, is that allowed? Like, is that what, how are we rating it? So yeah, it was quite interesting um, reading about that. But um, yeah, uh, uh, Victor Wooten, um, has won Bass Player of the Year three times from Bass Player Magazine, which is more than any other bass player in history. Um, he was voted the 10th greatest bassist in history by Rolling Stone. Um, so this is why I say he, it, it's maybe a bit cheeky of me to say he's underappreciated, but I do think when you're talking to just people who just like to listen to music and aren't necessarily sort of geeking out about it like we guys do, um, he's maybe not necessarily someone we've come across. I think that, that's a perfect chance to uh, have a little listen uh, to Ben Affleck and the Flecktones with the Sinister Minister. Great title. So yeah, there we go. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you have anything to add about Mr. Wooten. No, I mean, he's just a master at the bass guitar, to be honest. Uh, there's nothing he can't do. He's yeah. revolutionized it in many ways. I mean, one of the, one of the things, I, I, I don't know whether it's an, in, uh, an, like an influence he got from playing with Bella Fleck. I, I imagine maybe it was, is that you can hear, he does some really fast kind of runs on a bass, which I yeah. imagine he would do almost replicates the kind of bang, banjo style finger rolls that, that, that yeah. the, the banjo players do and I feel like he replicates that and I think that feeds into some of the classical stuff that he then did that you were talking about earlier yeah um also he in the in in the song there's some kind of bluegrass style open hammer-ons he does so he'll he'll yeah. hammer on to the fret from an open string but quite high up um and then he does this ridiculous rapid run in the <laughs> solo which is just absolutely crazy I, yeah I think I, I mean, it's, I think it's 32 notes, not 16th notes. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, he's just, uh, yeah, there's nothing he can't do, really. Yeah. Um, um, he's he he the apex of bass playing. Uh, I, I should also say, we, 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 we mentioned free bass earlier on, um, and, and he is kind of in, he's in a band also as well called SMV, um, uh, which is kind of, a, a, as much as there are amazing bassists in free bass, they're kind of like the better version of free bass. Um, <laughs> Uh, with uh, Stanley Clark and Marcus Miller. Um, if you don't know Marcus Miller, he's another phenomenal bassist that a lot of people know because of like vi viral YouTube videos yeah. of him teaching bass. Like that's a, that's yeah. another kind of similar to Victor Wooten is you'll come across yeah. this guy because it'll get shared around going, why isn't this guy more well known? And Marcus Miller's yeah. another kind of guy. So that'll play a lot with Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock, a very much a jazz bassist, but wow. yeah, phenomenal as well. Yeah, I think I think yeah, like you say, Victor Wooten. I think I've seen more Victor Wooten clinics than I have heard Victor Wooten songs. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I think make him special He's, is he, his nickname is the Master of the Clinic. Right. Ah, yeah. Okay. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, the, the, one of the reasons, just before we move on, I think it, he is so special is because not only does he have master of mastery over his instrument in a way that 
that no one's ever really kind of, or very few people in the world can 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 show. It is he is a prodigy in that sense. However, also he's got one of the most incredible musical ears I've ever ever known. So when you know, often you get jazz musicians singing the lines. Um, whether they're mic'd up or not, they sing the lines that they're playing because if they can hear it in their head, then they can play it as well. Um, and, and that is a, a common thing, but I don't think anyone sings and plays so accurately as yeah. as Victor Wooten uh, does. I, maybe, I think it's maybe phenomenal. George Benson, but I agree with you. George Benson certainly, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. as a yeah. guitar. Actually, there's a live version of him doing Broadway, and George Benson mm-hmm. sings and mm-hmm. plays at the same time, and it blew, yeah. blew my socks off. That's a really good shout, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Victor Wooden's kind of a, a base equivalent of George Benson in terms yeah. of that phenomenal ear and having having the God-given talent and the hard-earned technique. Uh, yeah. Good luck, Tim. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> good luck, Tim! That young whippersnapper. Oh, I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. Go well, Mr Wooden. Go well. Uh, what do I mean? More power to him? Mm, I don't yeah, know you, you mean. probably mean that. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> but another thing now is is he's he's now bassist for like a heavy metal band. So that was yeah, a, yeah an interesting career choice that he's made. But yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Although to be fair, I mean that is that is a career choice that's been that is a path that's been furrowed. Is that the word I want to say? Yeah. yeah. Uh, by people, I mean like uh, back when funk metal started, a lot of that was coming from jazz funk bassists joining metal bands. And then, yeah. Uh, and also, like on the flip side of it, kind of bad brains were like that as well. They were like a hardcore punk band that came from, had like a big, like the Rastafarians, and they had a kind of big reggae influence. So, yeah, I mean, to to be fair, talking about funk metal, uh, Cult of Personality by Living Colour was uh, in, yeah, in yeah. around the periphery of my list for a while, <laughs> but that might just be because I love CM Punk. But yeah, <laughs> um, should we go to my second choice? Is it yes. my turn? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. Um, Okay, this is going to make some uh, musicians listening at home annoyed, and I don't <laughs> care. Um, I'm going to pick a song by The Police. It's a bass line played by the great bassist uh, Sting, and the song is Hole in My Life. Now, um, both Josh and Dave will be aware that I'm a big fan of Police. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, sorry, I, I just wanted... No, I think one day might make the same point. To be yeah, fair. I I just want to jump in and say who's going to get and like. like yeah. I was talking to my mum about this the other day because she's a huge Sting fan, and she was saying that she was listening to something on the radio where someone like made or on TV where someone made a joke about like oh Sting's off with his loot, and I'm like, do you understand how difficult that instrument is to learn? Like <laughs> Sting is like a virtuoso musician. Like the police are phenomenal. Like I don't know who these people are that are, that are. are, are you don't need to give it's snobby about the police. There. He put a snobby about the police. I don't know if you hear that as well, well Josh. Yeah, well, no, it's because he went off trying to save Rainforest and doing tantric sex, and people were like, that's weird. <laughs> you know, because they're jealous of him. People are jealous of... St- and then he writes some awful lyrics, and he's a little bit like... Mm, yeah. Sometimes. He starts well, to shake, I, he starts to cough, just like police. that, but by now a cough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awful. Absolutely awful. However, um, the police were amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean... Oh, the first few albums are just wonderful. I think the amount of times uh, I used to make you listen to Synchronicity uh, on loop, which is one of my favourite uh, favourite albums, and it also made me fall in love with drumming. Um, and I think also this is what makes Police special is that Andy Summer is Andy Summers uh, is one of the most incredible um, guitarists. I know a big 
favourite of yours, Josh. Yeah. Um, Stuart Copeland is kind of an annoying dick doing <laughs> interviews now. <laughs> an incredible musician, a composer. Um, oh God! Let's not go there. Tristan's, another one of Tristan's respect, uh, requests. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was the composer of the film Future Sport, which, which was an oh, odd yeah. thing oh, to yeah. discover. And Copeland is a dreadful composer, uh, following in the footsteps, I think, of his of his uh, is it grandfather Aaron Copeland mm. or our, our father. Um, anyway, the point really? is, why there, are we just are we no? What? Not related. Not related. No, Callum. I assume they must have been, and that's why he wanted to be a film score composer. No, his, dad, Cope, his, his dad was famously like the, the head of the CIA, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Well, that explains yeah. why. And, his, weird and then his, bro- his brother was the his brother was the manager of. Oh my God, who was he manager of? Mars Copeland, someone really famous. He's about a complete mental blank, and I can't think of his brother was the manager. Of. Oh well, there you go. Oh, that, not not related to Aaron Cope. No more, less of an excuse for being such a terrible film composer. Um, but it, <laughs> a brilliant, a brilliant drummer. And I think that it's um, often talked about that when you think about police. And also interesting when you're talking about reggae being quite a strong influence in kind of um, alternative metal bands mm. and, and how jazz and, and reggae have both kind of come into quite heavy bands. I don't. I think I can't think of a better band for kind of reggae fusion when thinking about police. Um, and obviously, you've got to have a bit of a conversation about cultural appropriation there, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, with yeah. with three middle class white guys from Britain um, using uh, the you know a lot of the wonderful musical techniques of reggae uh, and profiting from it. But from a purely musical perspective, they did an awful lot uh, also for reggae. And and I think Hole in My Life's a really good example. Yeah, I'm a huge uh, fan of, of synchronicity. Um, uh, I'm not a huge uh, huge kind of savant when it comes to uh, Outlandos D'Amour, which is the 78 album, 1978 album that this track comes from. But I was looking through the police and trying to find a song that wasn't really, really well known for its bass line. Yeah. And you and I, I think you mentioned uh, Walking on the Moon. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's a great police bass line. And you go, well, yeah, they're, they're all really good. And also, I don't know if, you know, you've ever tried to play a, 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 a police bass line and sing what Sting sings? Yeah. Mm. I, I was amazed. And watching them do that Live 8 reunion, when he does it all live and it's literally just three of them, they sound incredible. Yeah. Um, Sting's, yeah. Sting's a really talented, uh, as you say, musician, but to be able to sing those parts and play yeah. those bass lines, it's like patting your head and rubbing your toe. Yeah, I agree. That's- Really interesting, um, but Hole in My Life is fantastic. It's got loads of great reggae in there, but it's also really contemporary. It pushes the rhythm whilst Copeland's kind of sitting in the pocket, which is what he is is best at. Uh, not always what he does, because he's such a, 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 an overfiller when it comes to uh, any opportunity to, to, to show off or hit a symbol, Copeland will do it, especially live. But in this track, he really sits in the pocket um, and this bass really, really cements, cements that. Um, and it allows Andy Summers to do some lovely atmospheric uh, fills guitar-wise, as well as also just hitting those reggae upstrokes, um, which are yeah. so iconic. Um, and I just think it's a really, really fantastic groove. Yeah. Um, I, I originally in my list had every little thing she does. Oh. Um, but I did think that's it is a well-known song. Not necessarily a well-known baseline, but I kind of put it in there more for sentimental reasons than it's necessarily universally underappreciated baseline um because uh uh i the bass is my absolute favorite instrument i love playing it more than any other instrument um and i don't think i've ever loved playing it more than 
learning to play that song. It was mm. actually a bass line, I think you taught me, Josh, um, uh, when uh, the three of us were in a, a band together that you played friends' anniversaries and and birthdays and we things. We had residency in a, uh, doing yeah. Sunday roasts. Doing Sunday uh, roasts in yeah. Kent. Um, that feels like a fever dream now, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. And yeah. And, ev and every little thing was on the set list. And uh, I just remember, yeah, Josh, you teaching me that that bass part and just absolutely yeah. falling in love with it and and really song. loving playing it. Yeah. Should we have a little listen to Hole in My Life? Let's have a little listen to Hole in My Life. Here it is, Sting at his best. Okay, that was fabulous. Josh, okay. anything else to add on the sting front? Uh, not really, no. I would say, actually, uh, I couldn't remember holding my life until you said it, um, so it was quite nice to go back and then revisit some of the early ones. Um, I, I only got it because I was searching end. for songs that weren't more well-known, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, no, but I it's such a great bass I think that's right. It yeah, really I is. I think it's fun. I think it is a really good uh, summation of sting, sting style um, throughout Police, especially early Police. Um, mm. Yeah, I, so I think it's a really, really good choice, but uh, not much more to add to everything that's been said about Gordon Sumner. Brilliant. Well, in that case, it's your uh, it's your second choice. I'm going to go for Frankie Knuckles. Well, actually, this depends which 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 one we go for. This is a bass line that's been used um, in at least three different songs, <laughs> um, and as a result, it's quite an interesting way of kind of charting how 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 different genres of music have manipulated bass lines throughout mm. the ages. And I think it's quite a good way of noticing that something might not be underappreciated, because it's certainly not been underappreciated by these DJs that kept pilfering it. But it's um, it kind of gives an element to the kind of slightly underrated element to it as well, possibly. So it's a bass line that appears on Frankie Knuckles' Your Love, which is a very famous dance track from the 1980s, a house track. Yeah. Uh, it also appeared on probably most well-known for people in the UK is You Got the Love, but the Sauce and Candy Staffing version, not the bloody Florence and Machine version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it comes, and then I, I knew about those two, but I didn't realise that actually it originally comes from a song by a group, I think, or a DJ, I think an Italian DJ called Electra, and it's a song called Feels Good, open bracket, carrots and beats, close bracket. Mm. Uh, so there you go. Um, Carrots and beets, and, as in like beetroot. Yeah, as in beetroot. Yeah, not as in beets, as in as in literally beetroot. Uh -huh. So beets. Yeah, like sugar beet. Well, maybe more sugar beets, but yeah. Um, <laughs> are we? Are we? Are we? Is that like as like a like a health smoothie? Is it a soup? Do we think they're just eating 
carrot and beetroot just as a, as a meal. Good for increasing your metabolism, lowering blood pressure, beetroot, very good for fighting off cancer. Many people actually, it's anti-carcinogenic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think perhaps all of those. Okay. Yeah. Good. Really know. Oh, good. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> uh, so, I don't, so I'm not sure which version I'll go for, really. I think maybe uh, I'll probably go for... Let's go for the candy stack and, and sauce version. Yeah. Because, uh, Can I... So good. Can I just clarify which mix? Because I was trying to find on Spotify a, a version that wasn't a mix. Yeah. Yeah. And they all seem to be someone's remixed it into something. And I couldn't actually find an, an unmixed version. I think, let me, let me double check. Because you're, you're totally right. I don't really understand. It's almost like this song never existed in like, <laughs> like where did it come from? <laughs> thank, like, thank you. It's like the ontology of this music is like almost godlike. We it's, don't know yeah, it, where, where is the big bang for this bass line? Because I, I was this. because I thought I found the version that was not a mix, but then it turned out that was like a later version than the mix was earlier. And I was like, well that yeah, yeah, that yeah. can't be the what's happening? Yeah. I think it's the original 1991 version. I th- right. And I think that's still on the 97 version as well, but I think yeah. there was a later one in 2006 where it's not as prominent. But yeah, it's a weird one. Uh, so if we need to, we'll just do Frankie Knuckles, Your Love, because it definitely is on there. And, but, it is, and as I say, it's the exact same baseline because okay. the, the source featuring Candy Staten is basically the source took the backing music for Your Love, um, completely just lifted it, right. and then Candy Staten sung over it. And it was originally done, I think, for... Um, uh, she was singing. For, it wasn't for an album. It wasn't for anything like that. It was just for a song that she got asked to do. She forgot she had done it. She didn't even remember recording it really. And then, <laughs> and then it then it got then it got famous a few years later because um, originally they did it in 1986 and then it got bigger in 1991. So uh, yeah, I think what's great about the baseline is I tell you what, let's listen to it first and then yeah. So, and also, which one do you prefer the the song wise? So I was thinking about this because the the the, the bass line, the kind of dum 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 dum, is great. That bit's really nice. But I like this kind of slightly ascending thing. And I thought, well, that's probably only in "You Got the Love." It's not. It's in both. But in "You Got the Love," it there's a, there's a, there's a lovely Candy Staff and vocals really really yeah. aid it. But honestly, I don't mind. It, it works in either one. Uh, yeah. Okay. So let's listen to "Your Love" by Frankie Up. discovered that you got the love was a cover shamefully a few like relatively like a couple of years ago mm. um but i was also told that they recorded all the vocals for florence the machine down the road uh, from us down in uh, really? in uh, the crystal palace antenna studios did they yeah because um, it's a there, there are two of them florence and the machine uh the machine it represents all the music that, that's written by uh, by a Crystal Palace local uh, lady in Florence as the vocalist. I believe mm. that's how it works, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, and then Isabel. she... Is it, is it Isabel? Isabel something, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Exactly. And then she yeah. just kind of has 
session people for her live tours and stuff. But yeah, wow. yeah. But apparently that was all yeah created in in Antares. Thanks, Crystal Palace. Didn't didn't the XX also do a version of You've Got the Love like around the same time as well? I swear. Yeah, they could have done. Like, I feel like done. yeah, probably been, like, a lot of yeah. Josh Stone did a version of it as well. Excellent. Why? Well, why yeah. didn't you pick that one, Josh? What? Uh, oh, how long have we got? I could probably talk. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Winner. Did you, did you winner guys, of the, the last. last sing- of course. I of cannot. Course. Expl- I cannot explain to you. I cannot explain to you the disappointment of it being her. <laughs> oh, why? She <laughs> is. She. I. I can. I will not. I will not say. I will not talk more about Justin. Do you not like her voice? I'm not. I, it, this is this is apart from her voice. It's her as a person. Oh wow! Yeah. Did, did did you meet her and not get on? Uh, I think I have met her. In this, <laughs> but an, another thing is just her her in general. I've heard lots of stories about her and uh, from people who have come across her, and I think I've also come across her when I was in Exeter. Um, well, that would make sense. Yeah, time and frame wise. To be honest, she's just a bit annoying. Like, did you see her thing in the pandemic where she was in Barbados or the Bahamas telling everyone to be happy? She did the same thing when she won Mars Singer. And it's yeah. like, that's great that you have the opportunity to be happy in Bar- in the Bahamas or in Barbados in your house mm. with your beautiful sunshine and shit ton of money in your wallet. I don't know. Anyway, let's not. What? We're not, we're not did you date her? Yeah, there's vitriol in this that I feel like goes deeper. It sounds like a romantic kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely not. absolutely not we're gonna keep going with this i tell you what though what 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 i was amazed that she has played every single country in the entire world except for iran yeah yeah that's she's played north korea she's played Turkmenistan. this is incredible it endears the islamic republic of iran to me a little bit if i'm being completely honest (laughs) (laughs) i think she should have tried harder why not just do iran power power to the ayatollah but there you go (laughs) Uh, I, I quite like your voice, Joss. I think you're a good a good song. Joss, Joss, I love your voice. I think yeah, she's a fantastic singer. It's not good. <laughs> Excellent. All right then. Great bassline. Uh, some interesting versions um, and something that's carried us throughout history. David, what's yes. your next choice? We're on to my third pick. Um, it's Joss Stone. <laughs> uh, um, from one waterfall to another. Uh, my third pick. <laughs> is Waterfalls by TLC. Um, 1995, right. yes. Waterfalls, as in Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls, yeah. by TLC. Yeah. Okay, I mean, yeah. it's an incredible this is choice. This is, yeah. this is, out of all the picks, but Dave, this is the best. This, I didn't have no clue. This right. completely bypassed me, how good yeah. the baseline is. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. 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 So, so um, the bass uh, in this track is played by Lamarkey, quote unquote, remarkable with a Q, Jefferson, um, and he is kind of the sort of bassist for like Atlanta hip hop and R and B yeah. in the nineties, mid nineties through into the early noughties. So he played a lot on early Outcast stuff, like pre Miss Jackson Outcast stuff when they were just mm-hmm. starting out. Uh, he played a lot with Sierra. He co-wrote Yeah, the Usher and Lil John huge hit. Um, I love it. Co-writer on that. Um, just uh, yeah, it, um, 
incredible. Um, and the entire baseline is completely improvised uh, at the time of recording yeah. in the studio. Uh, nothing was pre-written. Um, he um, it, it, uh, played a, uh, he normally would play a white Sadowski four, but for this, he played a Ken Smith six string, which he refers to as his waterfall's bass when he ah. plays it. it was, uh, yeah, uh, uh, went for a different option. Um, um, he was hired by um, a group called Organized Noise, who are basically a group of songwriters and producers that are kind of the pioneers for Atlanta hip hop, which is why he's so heavily featured on that sort of genre of, of music. Um, and there's a great documentary about organized noise where they talk about this bass part on this song. Oh. And they talk about the fact that they, um, the producers kind of weren't here when the bass part was being laid down. It was just the studio engineer. And when they came back, they were listening to it. And they went, oh, wow, that's great. Who's that playing guitar? And they were like, no one. They were like, no, that, but like the the sort of wobbly bits, what's that? That's a, that's a great guitar part. and. The engineer was like, no, 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 that's Jefferson on the bass. And they're like, sorry, that's the bass. And they're like, yeah. So, and actually, oh, when I, I must admit, before I did the research for this, when I chose Waterfalls, I thought the high bits you hear with the guitar, and I actually chose this purely for the low bits of bass alone, everything you hear is the bass part. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it's just him going up and down, up and down the fretboard. Um, I think it's a prime example of what you were saying earlier, like songs that you would never... Thing, and Josh, you were saying this as well, like songs that you just grew, you know, they grew, you know, they're good pop tunes, but you you never really would listen or pick out the bass line. And part of that's because it's quite low in the mix, actually. It's not massively up there, is it? In the same way right. that um, my my waterfall, you know, you can really hear the, the bass line there. This is something that is quite buried. Um, and I, I felt like that was, that was really, that's why I hadn't really keyed into it. But as you said, Josh, like, Never would have picked this, but it's incredible. It's an incredibly difficult bass line as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and uh, something else that I discovered in my research, I was trying to find. Uh, it's not a huge amount of information on him, um, which kind of sort of backs up the idea that he's probably underappreciated because you know there's no interview in any magazine. There's nothing. He, he's just kind of a session guy. Um, but as such, he's he's seemingly quite vocal on kind of bass guitar forums on bass websites <laughs> and i actually found um a a chat on one of these forums where someone had brought up how they just noticed how great the bass part was on waterfalls and asked who it was and someone said oh it's the marquis jefferson and then it kind of the chat went on and eventually the marquis himself turns up and weighs in and um <laughs> this is all he says no kind of oh hi i'm the marquis just says the way to always be over the top and reinventive of oneself is to try things that no one else will or has, especially if it doesn't make sense. Once it becomes a hit, you're then considered an innovator or maybe just creative for that time. At the time I did Waterfalls, the envelope bass sound was all but dead, especially on R&B radio. Once that record came out, I'm sure Roland, Boss, Electro, Harmonics, DOD, and a host of other Stompbox companies enjoyed the fruits of my labor from bassists looking for that sound. Now, I'm not saying that I invented or reinvented it. I just went against the grain of what was considered the norm for that time. And by the grace of God, it worked. Cool. <laughs> what a legend. That is very what cool. Legend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, yes. I think, I think he's missed a trick here. And this is for mm. those people out there who enjoy making puns related to alternative theories for evolution and natural selection. 
but he should have done a solo album called Lamarckism, which was like yeah. the alternative theory of uh, oh. inherited uh, genes and stuff. So I think he's really missed a trick there. He's and got time. If anything com- I think if anything comes out of this podcast, I'd like for him to be able to know that and then create an album called Lamarckism. Lamarckism. And there we go. Jefferson, you can have that for free. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah listen. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, just to say uh, that, uh, fun little fact, CeeLo Green is one of the backing vocalists on this song. Mm. Yeah. Great fact. Which is cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this is uh, 1995 track, Waterfalls by TLC. McCartney. There's Paul McCartney got yes. about that song because they nicked his words. Yeah, it's it's really weird. I I played this to Callum the other day, and he just was like, "Wait, what is going on?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah." yeah they it's it's sort of the same, but not, which is because it's a completely yeah. different song and melody and and yeah. a tempo, but the were the first two lines are the same. Yeah, which is, yeah. yeah very weird yeah. but it's good you get on the uh, google hit yeah, no, that, that, yeah yeah exactly no that is a great baseline i think what's so good about that but one it's brilliant that it's improvised but i actually think the fact it's improvised means that it, it, it what is in i think because it's improvised you get like he's put little elements of the whole r&b funk bass guitar canon in yeah. there um uh, he hasn't really held back and so it's like that's what makes it such a quite quite a rewarding Baseline, and also you only really have to be, learn to play that baseline, and you can probably play most of the different kind of styles you'd ever want to play uh, yeah. in a lot of kind of R and B stuff. Because he does syncopation, he does like ghost notes, chromatics. He plays like along with the vocal line. He does a call and response in some parts of it, which is brilliant. Yeah. So I, I assume he must have laid everything down after the vocals. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I I think I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I just brilliant. Like I honestly, when I saw you put it as a thing, I thought, oh, I guess that's just going to be a kind of run of the mill funk thing, and yeah. it is in a way. If run of the mill is the amazing kind of funk bass that came after, like, I'm, yeah. Like, like I kind of always, like, I'm just thinking of some of the stuff on like D'Angelo's albums and and neo mm-hmm. soul and stuff, which was around about the same time. But yeah, no, brilliant bassline, very good. Carries um, a lot of the same kind of vibe as James Jameson and stuff from the seventies. Yes, um, I mean, yeah. Uh, James J- uh, James Jameson is absolutely a name that we have to talk about on this podcast when we're talking yeah, about bassists because yeah. he's just yeah. an icon of of bass playing. Um, but also, I do believe that Lamarcky Jefferson has played with uh, D'Angelo. Yeah, so that yeah, might be why you're you're hearing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's me. interesting. Yeah, it's kind of that slightly overplaying, right? And that's what he's saying. He went. You know, when he talks in that forum of why 
why it might have gone against the grain because it's it's naughty bass playing it's too much it's too busy yeah. but for some reason on this track it really works and you do hear it in yeah like you say in a lot of neo, neo soul stuff and um yeah that makes sense to me um but yeah some great stuff also just to clarify no relation to lamar jefferson of uh, the season four of american idol fame mm. no uh, well maybe but definitely related to thomas so <laughs> absolutely lamar k yeah, Lamarquee. Yeah, Lamarquee. It took me so long to work out who Lamar Jefferson was. I was like, why am I, do I think of, why am I thinking of someone else? Um, because you're wrong, because Lamar Jefferson is someone that we went to university with in America. No, and also was in season four of American Idol and has a brother oh, um, who they perform with called Lamar and Jamar Jefferson. Um, there you go. Yeah, quite famous. But actually, the reason I'm thinking of it is because that's the name of the day we met. Yeah. Oh, great. There you go. Okay. There you go. There you are. Are you ready to move on? I think so. All right. Here is my third choice. Now, I've, now, now, you've made me question my order of things. Mm. Maybe you're right. Um, so I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to mix it up um, and and take us away. My next choice is a brilliant track called "Step Right Up" by the incredible Tom Waits, featuring the wonderful bassline of Jim Hugart from the 1976 album, Small Change. Mm. Um, now, you and I actually uh, did a few episodes um, uh, on uh, the brilliant British podcast award-winning uh, show, uh, Song by Song. Yeah. Um, which is, a, for those of you, if you're a Tom Waits fan, this is an absolute must for you. It's a podcast where they, every episode um, is going through one song by Tom Waits uh, from some super fans. They have some incredible guests as well. Um, and they talk about it in a lot of detail. And it's a really geeky uh, podcast, but they have some cool guests on who might not have even kind of necessarily been into Tom Waits that much. And uh, guesting on it was really, really fun. Big uh, thank you to Sam and Martin. But my first ever uh, guest spot when was looking at four episodes from the album of Small Change specifically. And I'd never really paid a lot of attention to that album. Because yeah. Waits has a huge output. Um, yeah. I know you're a big Waits fan, Josh. Yeah. I don't know what your favourite album would be. Um, Closing Time, maybe? Uh, no, that's the one I listen to the least. Is it really? Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not as much into that one. Of, of, there's probably two Tom Waits albums I'm not, I'm not as massively into. I think Closing Time is one of them. Yeah, Sword of Fush Trombones is a big one for me. Yeah, I, that's, that's, up there yeah pretty good but small changes yeah something i never spent that much uh, time yeah. with um and so i really got into uh into this album and one of the things i loved about it is that tom waits is kind of sticking with his piano and vocal at this point um and it creates quite a lot of space for other musicians um and jim hugart is, is a shining example on this album um, he's had some incredible uh, different bass players. Um, but we're also talking about the double bass here as well, which is yeah. quite nice. Yeah, I really appreciate that you brought that into it whilst um, we're talking about basses, that we can give a bit of love to the double bass. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially the same instrument. It's the father of the electric bass. Um, but normally when we think about bass playing, you know, you think of someone plugged into an amp, uh, grooving away, um, normally with an unusually high uh, guitar strap on. Um, but... Obviously, it was a, it was a, it's a double bass taken, you know, as, as I ironically mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, from orchestra. So just correct, it, it, it's the grandfather. It's the grandfather. It's the grandfather. The father's the cello. Actually. The father's the cello. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, take a cello, put it on its side. Cello. You've got a bass. Uh, although different tuning, of course, uh, for those pedants out there. Um, the, one, one of the reasons I love this track is kind of a bit similar. I did question whether I was just thinking the same thing, but very much like some of the other bass lines we've discussed. Actually, it's very simple. Um, and it's just, a, it's one simple, clever idea repeated throughout the whole song. Um, I think it's just like a, 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 an eight bar sequence repeated again and again over this incredible kind of beat poetry from Tom Waits. It's, it's kind of listing things in a dramatic American way. Um, and it all feels, you know, very smoke and whiskey filled. But there's just something so steady about it. And also I love the fact that you can hear the percussive nature of this double bass as well. That slapping as well that, that is real. Um, a lot of people when, when thinking about um, uh, 50s, 60s rock and roll often talk about something called tic-tac bass which is that dunk, 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 dunk. And that slapping sound is, is really difficult to achieve if you're playing this live. Um, and people really hurt their fingers. I've had a lot of MDs saying, dig into it, dig into it more, because they're trying to get that clicky sound. Well, often, if you listen to a Johnny Cash track, for example, that tic-tac bass is actually from uh, a, a guitar-sized bass guitar. So uh, the Beatles used to play this a lot live when Paul McCartney was playing piano. Uh, George and, and John both had uh, these guitars where where it is a bass register, but it's six strings and you can and, and, and the, you don't have to move your fingers quite so much. And they were doubling those double bass parts. This is original smoky jazz digging in with your fingers, percussive bass. And I just think it, it drives the song beautifully. And, um, and it's a really interesting part. So um, we should probably have a little listen. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's Jim Hugo. <laughs> Bargains galore. That's right, you two can be the proud owner of the quality goes in before that name goes on. Uh, one tenth of a dollar. One tenth of a dollar. Nice. I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? Yes, it's lovely when someone takes a double bass for a walk. Yeah. Is it that? Is it Will Farrell take the bass line for a walk and keep the cymbal smashing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you're um, um, a, a particular fan of your double bass parts, uh, Josh. Yeah, I love them. I love them actually because one of the one of my choices was going to be Ronnie Size represent Brown Paper Bag, which mm. like, uh, but I actually thought maybe that, that I mean that was that that was probably my sixth choice, and then I think I thought because it's such a well-known song in terms of drum and bass and things, I mean I yeah. might take it out, but I mean that might that might pop up. I might talk about that a little bit more later. But no, he's a brilliant bassist. Um, it's a really good indicate. It's a really good uh, song to show that style. And he did. He did the pretty much all the Tom Waits albums up until Tom Waits got weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. So up until Sorkin's Trombones, I think he did all the albums. So pretty well, all the notable ones. So I think he might have started out with Heart Saturday Night, and then he went went up to Heart Attack on Vine, I think Heart Attack mm -hmm. on Vine, mm -hmm. um, and did everything in. So Tom Waits in his kind of Jazz troubadour, Jim was the who I call him Jim. Uh, which is funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, he makes like you and Jim. He was, in fact, I think he, was, he, he introduced he you to Josh Stone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and so, oh, interesting as well. You might enjoy this because I know we talked about Wendy Malvin or however it's yeah. pronounced. Her father Malvin. was in Tom Waits' band. No. Yeah, Mike Malvin was the is the is the pianist, I think. Oh, Brilliant. Tom Waits that... on 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 a few of his albums, I think, but uh, well, maybe not a few, but definitely Nighthawks at the Diner, which is probably one of my favourite Tom Waits albums, uh, which is the live album which yeah. Jim Hugart is on as well and does his his bass work on that is phenomenal. Uh, I think there's one bit where he goes off under the solo and Tom Waits says something like, oh man, I better, someone someone chain up the bassist. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very, very good. Uh, so if anyone is looking for a kind of something uh, Tom Waitsy that has that has has Jim Hugart's bass all over it, I would say Nighthawks at the Diner is one of the best. And it has that added ba- added benefit of being a live album. Which for jazz music really really helps, I think, in lots of kind of things because you get to see a little bit more of the interplay between the musicians. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, he's very 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 good, he's, and he's played on a phenomenal amount of records, I think, as well. Brilliant, awesome. Well, that's it. That's uh, that's my uh, third choice. I'll pass it over the mantle to you, Josh. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm going to go back to the. Uh, late 70s early 80s we're going to go mm-hmm. back to the kind of post-punk scene we're going to go to Alvis Costello and the attractions and we are going to go to a bassist by the name of Bruce Thomas and we're going to go to a song called every day I write the book um which I so I made a decision sometimes like I think about people I haven't heard of and like gaps in my listening knowledge and Alvis Costello is one of them mm. um the, the, the Alvis Costello song I've heard the most is Shipbuilding, the Robert Wyatt version. So uh, <laughs> and I had always, I think, I remember seeing like Alvis Costello on Top of the Pops 2 when he did I Can't Stand Up for Falling Down or whatever it is, and just being yeah. a bit annoyed about the gimmicky performance he did on it. Mm. And so I think that annoyed me. And then Oliver's Army. And I think I just thought he was something else other than what he is. Yeah. And then, obviously, in his latest incarnations, he's been that kind of almost chanteurs slash well, jazz kind of guy and he's just I an was, incredibly talented songwriter isn't he so. I was I was gonna say I think my first my first memory of, of kind of being aware of Costello was his version of She from Notting Hill yeah, and watching yeah, that as a kid um, I, and I, being I, like oh this is cool who's this yeah, yeah. I, I, so I think that was the same I just think it took me years to realise that was that was Costello that was, that was Costello. exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah and and I also like my dad used to sing Oliver's Army at me a lot because he think it would annoy me I think it's just... yeah. I so my first introduction to Elvis Costello similar to you Josh was Top of the Pops 2 and Oliver's Army yeah and I think there's a video of him on the roof. Yeah. And the band, they just look like having a really good time. But it's such an earworm. And I really think that that that, that song's a really good example of why Elvis Costello's voice works. I actually get kind of annoyed by, by his voice in She. By there are there are other points that I think it's quite it's it, it's a, such a unique voice that I don't yeah. actually think it's as versatile as Elvis Costello the musician is. <laughs> Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. But again, very, very personal uh touch um and you know everyone's got a, a costello impression right it's that yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 everyone sounds like he's got, he's got really he's got a cult do you like it yeah that was really good right it's on the list um yeah. now just uh before i like carry on josh i just want to give yeah. you a little fun fact about bruce thomas yeah um so i know bruce thomas because i, mean, I don't know him personally but i know of him 
You don't because... know him, like, I know Joss Stone. No, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, who does know anyone like that intimately? Yeah. Did Bruce um, Thomas break your heart? Like Bruce Joss Thomas Stone really Stone. break Joss Stone. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so uh, uh, Callum and I sometimes have a sideline in writing children's musicals for China. Um, it's a real thing. That's right. That's right, guys. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's something we thing. Callum uh, and Dave are the propaganda wing for <laughs> one such musical we wrote uh, featured a song about Bruce Lee uh, that I wrote the lyrics to. My research consisted of reading a lot from Bruce Lee's biographer, who happens to be Bruce Thomas, the bass player for oh, Jeff no, Yeah, that's no, his not- sideline. Yeah, not it's, the same person. It is the same person. Sorry, this is it's like a Bruce on Bruce. Yeah, it's the same person. He <sighs> he has a secondary job as being Bruce Lee's biographer, as well as being bassist of the attractions. Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah. you discovered Bruce Thomas's sideline job yeah. whilst doing your sideline job. Exactly. And it's Bruce on Bruce. Bruce on Bruce. And neither of them are Bruce Springsteen, which no. is confusing. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's a yeah. great yeah. fact. Yeah, I thought yeah. you'd enjoy that. Yeah. But yeah, a great baseline. Yeah, a great baseline. It, it uh, is. Have, yeah. Should we, a, should we have a listen first and then a quick yeah. chat about it? Yeah, right. let's do it. so up in the mix yeah um, and it's it's melodic and uh yeah i mean i'd never heard of him as i say like i hadn't really heard of Elvis costello and i started listening to um some of the attraction stuff about a year ago and mm. uh got really into it and then when we started doing this i he didn't come to mind straight away but then when i started listening to norman what roy something popped up i think on like a yeah all listen to this like on youtube uh, and it popped up with an attraction song. It actually popped up with Lipstick Vogue, which is another amazing example of bass playing. There's some, I mean, there are lots of amazing examples of it. Lipstick Vogue is is, is probably uh, as good as Every Day I Write the Book for for a um, for an example of his playing. Um, but I just like Every Day I Write the Book. I think the bass playing is really nice, and it, it's like a it's a really nice kind of accompaniment to the singing, um, which is something I generally quite like anyway. Um, mm. But yeah, I just. A, Brilliant bassist I hadn't have hadn't really ever given any credence to. Um, always quite he's uh, reading more about him. He's quite an interesting guy. Doesn't mind slagging off Alvis Costello, which is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like they've split acrimoniously twice as people. So that's uh, okay. that's always that's always helpful for a few tidbits. And yeah, just really good. And his bass playing's um, a really a really interesting mix of some of the people that 
uh, we will not have included in this list mm. because they're too famous as bassists. So Jack Bruce, yeah. um, James Jameson, um, to name but two. And I think they are all over the kind of bass playing that he does on a lot of the attraction stuff. Um, and he did loads of session work as well. So he's done Chrissy Hind. I think he did a lot of session work for as well. Mm. Um, I think he pl- I think he played with McCartney, but okay. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure in what kind of style he did uh, play with McCartney. But he, you know, he was he was around a, a lot of that scene, and he was highly regarded at the time. And I'm sure he's still highly regarded now. Uh, in his even even if he's probably. You know, more famous as Bruce Lee. If I'm being honest, that's absolutely blown my mind. <laughs> right? I wouldn't. That wouldn't. I wouldn't have ever. You can't make that up, really, can you? No. You see, I had it the other way around when I was doing Bruce Lee research, and went, "Oh, this guy's name keeps cropping up in the Bruce Lee research," and so researching <laughs> him and going, "Wait, he's the bassist for Elvis Costello." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great. It's a great track that you've chosen, though, and I think. Um, it's a good example also of uh, Costello's songwriting prowess. He's a great lyricist. And yeah. also there's something odd to uh, a teenager in the early noughties uh, getting into Costello. But when you think about it in the context of that mid to late 70s, uh, you know, he is kind of punk in his in his philosophical approach to performance, right? Yeah. There's something yeah. Uh, satirical about his performance. And there's something really clever about his songwriting, but also he's super smart in the musicians that he surrounded himself. And I think this is a, a prime example when you hear about song like that. Yeah, yeah. And what I and what I like about Bruce Thomas, uh, that he seems to be very, he seems to be a really educated guy about bass lines, mm. um, because as I've read up some stuff about him, and and well, the art, some of the articles are well. There's a very interesting one on KnowYourBassPlayer.com that I read. Where essentially they seem to basically credit all of his bass lines with being rip-offs of other more famous bass lines that he then just puts into and meshes them together. But I quite like that because I think it shows that he's got a real uh, education on different bass lines. He's really into bass as a kind of as mm. a mechanism for for expressing yourself, and then he's just managed to synthesize them really well into into styles of music. And uh, yeah, it just I'm now I'm now quite enamoured with post-punk and bass playing because <laughs> I think it's. Mm. There seems to just be some really good examples all over the playing of it. Brilliant. Excellent. Yeah. What a great choice. Nice mix going on here. Dave, over to you. Right. So we're into our fourth picks now. Um, And yeah, so this um, is uh, a few reasons I've picked this next one. Uh, One, there's a personal connection. Um, I've already talked a little bit about... uh, playing bass uh, in our band with, with with you guys for a little bit that period of time. I first started playing the bass. I, I played guitar, I think I started learning guitar when I was about 13, 14, but I never picked up a bass until 2011 when it was our uh, final show, you know what I mean, Cal, uh, at yeah. drama school, and uh, I uh, bought a bass specifically for that show. Um, and we've mentioned that show before when we talked uh, previously about this band in a different context. And uh, when we were doing our intros and outros podcast, which was for oh, Tristan yes. as well, and I talked about this band then, and I'm coming back to them now, and that is the band Talking Heads and the song Born Under Punches, uh, in parentheses, and the beat goes on. Um, so, Excellent uh, song. Yeah, um, 1980, it was written, it's the opening track to Remain in Light, which I think is arguably Talking Heads' best album. Um, 
and it features the bass playing of the just iconic Tina Weymouth, probably the greatest female bassist of all time. Um, one of the greatest bassists of all time, regardless of gender. Um, and very, very African influenced um, and South American influenced, uh, huge uh, Fela Kuti vibes that you get mm. off, off this song, off the whole album in particular. Um, it's Tom York's favorite song of all time. Um, it? Yeah, it's, um, it's got definitely got the title of a Tom York song. Like, <laughs> yeah, one Yeah, in brackets and the beat goes on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's just um, I, I I wanted to get Tina Weymouth in here, but I obviously couldn't pick Psycho Killer because that's one of the most iconic bass parts of all time ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wanted to acknowledge Tina Weymouth. So kind of a bit like what Josh was saying about one of those considerations was well-known bassists, but perhaps songs that fall by the wayside because they're kind of better known for for other bass parts. And I think that's what I've done here, because I think when people think of Talking Heads bass, you think of the bum, 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 you know. Um, But actually I went and listened to One of the Punches and it's so cool and weird and bizarre. And yeah, it's just great. Um, So it was... um, a really strange period of time for the band. They'd done the last couple of albums with Brian Eno and Eno as the producer. And Eno and Byrne had kind of gone off on their own and Weymouth um, uh, and um, her husband, Franz, can't remember his surname, the drummer. Chris Franz. Um, Chris Franz, sorry, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Weymouth and Chris Franz were like so close to leaving at this point just before remaining light because they took a hiatus um after the previous album and they went to the bahamas uh and bought a house there and then they became involved in like a voodoo cult it's like a really oh it's a really weird story about weymouth and franz at this time and they went really kind of yeah very very sort of spiritual and tribal and then they invited Byrne to come and stay with them, and Byrne did, and they buried the hatchet, and Byrne kind of, yeah. Was that part of of the ritual, burying the hatchet? Burying the hatchet, yeah, (laughs) it was. Um, But yeah, I've got a a, a quote from David Byrne. He said um, he realised that he had to sacrifice his ego for mutual cooperation, and... Uh, as such, Remaining Light kind of became the most democratically created Talking Heads album up mm. to that point, because before they felt very much like they were David Byrne's session band. Yeah. And uh, that period of reflection and time before Remaining Light, where they all kind of got together and talked all this through and talked it out, um, uh, m- managed to give way to yeah a, a much tighter cohesive band where they were all yeah. as influential as each other and i think born under punches is a really great example of that yeah. sound yeah. I, I, I love that story i mm. never knew that and it makes a lot of sense yeah when you hear remain in light and you think god this is incredible and and you know yeah. in terms of orchestration in terms of how everything's put together it is uh, really really genuinely interesting stuff yeah, yeah. Um, Tina Weymouth as well. I think someone you you, you can recognise her. I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know what you think, Josh, but you know when we talked about um, guitarists who you can recognise from one note, yeah, whether yeah. that's like Gilmore or Prince yeah. or uh, yeah. maybe Clapton. Um, 
I think Tina Weymouth is a bassist you can recognise <laughs> from one yeah. note. Yeah, yeah. So I think some of the things that really uh, are kind of example. In fact, this song is 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 a perfect exemplar of her style, really. Yeah. Um, because it's got the kind of high register pops, which is one of the most notable things that you hear is the kind of uh, a couple of notes just pop out of pop mm. out of the mix, and then she leaps in register, so she moves her hands up and down the fretboard like rapidly, quickly. She has a real good sense of where of where her fretboard is. And then there's all the heavy syncopations that are just indicative of punk playing and African playing, especially. Mm. And then probably most notable about this is the fact that she plays the same bass line for, you know, seven minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is something that, that she does. That's, and that's something the Talking Heads do. That's part yeah. of where their groove comes from and, and why they have that such that kind of dance element to it, which, again, is so much of that is taken from disco and from African music and, and, yeah. and things like that and Felicuti style and West African music specifically. Um, so yeah, this song is a, is a perfect example of her bass style, bass style, and I think that considering David Byrne made her audition three times for Talking Heads, yeah, he treated her like absolute shit. So yeah. good on, good on her. But then, uh, you know, he does have Asperger's, so perhaps mm. there was an element of they didn't quite know why he was like he was. But there you go. Yeah, that does make yeah. sense. Yeah, it it, yeah. it certainly felt that way. Um, yeah. yeah. Incredible. Um, yeah, and Talking Heads, what an, what an amazing band in terms of output and genuine contribution to the development of music. And Absolutely. seen a way with big, big part of that. Um, yeah. yeah. Great choice. Okay, should we have a little listen? Let's have a little listen. This is my fourth choice. Now, it's interesting, actually, thinking about the time of when a lot of our bass lines are picked. I know you said that you've kind of gone for, it was like everything within a 15-year period. But but a lot of my choices have been around the kind of 70s, um, uh, mid-70s mark. Uh, this next track I'm going to go for, Is This Love mm-hmm. by Bob Marley. So Bobbit of Marleyshire. Um, it is obviously a hugely famous song, right? Yeah. Uh, so I know that the song isn't underrated. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think that reggae in general ha- is hugely underrated. And I don't know whether I would have thought of this if I hadn't already kind of uh, selected um, the, the police track and wanting to do something yeah. in terms of contemporary reggae. Um, but also, I, I was talking to my, to my friend Al Twist, who I mentioned earlier, uh, and he said, you know, when you think about underrated bassists, you, you, you're, you've also got to think about the ones who are brilliant. Um, and do many people kind of know the name of, of the godfather of reggae? And, and in terms of uh, bass playing, the Aston family man Barrett mm. um, is someone who has just contributed hugely. Um, he was with uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers for everything up and from 1970 to 83, all mm. recorded output. Um, and most live uh, acts as well. So this is from the album uh, Kaya um, from 1978, uh, Is This Love. Uh, it, 
it's a, it's a wonderful example of a couple of things. Good bass playing in general, which is to sit in a pocket, drive that um, uh, foundation so that you can have obviously literally the higher instruments, but also vocals and lyrics shining, right? So you know where not to play. But also in terms of that being even harder when you talk about the syncopation that you've mentioned, Josh, um, uh, of reggae um, and the kind of rules of reggae, especially when we think of uh, the evolution um, of, of Jamaican music and, and ska and rock steady uh, and reggae, how important that rhythm is. So not only do you have to be incredibly tight to play reggae music, but you also have to have a pretty good knowledge uh, of, of what those rules are. And I think Aston Family Man Barrett kind of made those a lot of those rules because no one had heard as much reggae music before Bob Marley and before the Waders. So hugely influential as well. So I think slightly underrated uh, as, a, as a career as well. Uh, I've been playing guitar for 20 years. I still can't play on the offbeat. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be really hard, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, if that's not what you're kind of uh, uh, used to. Um, but either way, we should probably, you all know the song, we should probably have a little listen anyway. Here's Family Man uh, with Is This Love by Bob Marley. Family Man Barrett, because I was, I mean, my mum's huge reggae fan, so I was list having reggae played around me from a very young age, but but I know him more for his work with Lee Scratch Perry, because that's who my mum kind of mm. idolised, um, uh, and I know he, he was pretty much the predominant bassist for Lee Perry, I think, um, yeah. certainly in the, in the 80s, I think just post Whalers stuff. Yeah, um, it definitely comes up as kind of, as a as significant on his kind of contribution to yeah. his, his discography, yeah. uh, Lee Scratch, as yeah. as much as Bob Marley, really. Yeah. Um, but I think probably yeah. a lot of people know Bob Marley as an icon and as a popular cultural icon yeah. as much uh, as much as a musician. Um, although there's some yeah. incredible Lee Scratch yeah. Perry stuff that actually I think it eclipses a lot, a lot of Bob Marley's well known agree. work. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. Yeah. Are you a good reggae bassist, Josh? Um. I don't think I've ever played that much reggae bass, but I love it. I mean... Hang on. Yeah. What? I mean, I feel like the standard do a lot of Scar, which is kind of the similar principles. Mm. Oh, yeah. And then I played in a band, I played in a Scar band before the standard, which was what the standard are from. Yeah. Vandals. Yeah, of course. Uh, do you know what? I've forgotten all about the Peppermint oh, Vandals. you can't forget about the Peppermint Vandals. Yeah, if you haven't... Not, listeners, if you've never heard of the Peppermint Vandals, go and check them out. <laughs> Five, there's, five, there's five songs knocking about somewhere. Yeah, they're really good. Um, but, yeah, but we were a bit more like two tone scar. We weren't necessarily as the proper kind of because scar yeah. as we know now isn't really the scar that started out in Jamaica. The scar that started yeah. out in Jamaica is more like Desmond Decker. That, that yeah, that's very true. Really, yeah. But I would say, I mean, Aston Family Man Barrett. Ironically, he's, he's had fifty two kids. Right? Do you know? But do you know what the interesting thing is? Fifty two kids. Called, but he was called Family Man before that. Yeah. 
So he didn't have 52. He wasn't in the place He's living loads of kids and went, oh, family man. No, he called himself family man because he saw himself as a bit more like a paternal person, I think. And then Nenny had 52 kids. He's living up to his name. He's actually yeah. had 50. I didn't know that. I knew that I there mean, was that, a thing about him being called family man before he had the, children. That's... that's that's the amount on the Wikipedia. I have read varying different amounts of how many kids he's had, but it's a lot, put it that way. He's, uh, yeah, he's done quite a few. But it was him and his brother. So Carlton Barrett was the drummer. Mm. Um, and they, I mean, they're credited by lots of people inventing reggae as we know it, really, um, in terms of the sound. But there was lots of other roots reggae bands that were around at the time. And mm. really, like, you think of Sly and Robbie as well, who are the very famous Jamaican yeah. drum, drum and bass combo. So they're kind of the protégés of... Family Man Barrett and Carlton Barrett. I mean, that's kind of where a lot of their uh, sensibilities come from. Is from them. So um, you you see his influence kind of reach out through them as much as anything, and what they went on to do. But obviously, I mean, they they eclipsed them in many ways because Sly and Robbie were just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, they they featured yeah, on a documentary yeah, watched recently, actually. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. Hearing them talk about uh, about reggae as a, a you know as a philosophy as a way of life. Mm. Um, really makes sense and and i think it really allows your vocals and your message to to breathe which is really important when you're talking about a protest genre yeah well and Um, and most importantly really actually reggae is devotional music i mean it's it's hymns yeah that's what you remember i mean bob bob marley is a preacher and bob marley is a messianic figure like just imagine that if you were following religion and your person is someone who you have that connection with to such a Mm. they have that music it's you know it's 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 religious really yeah i I think about it like i think about i think about listening to reggae music like you think about listening to hymnal music i don't i don't think there's that much distinction really in terms of what they're trying to convey Mm. Um, and yeah i think you're right you know to be able to have that sensibility to allow that and then make it so musically interesting like reggae music is just eternally interesting which is yeah uh and simple but yeah you know, it comes from simple, simple, simple framework and simple structures, but just very, very intelligent people creating the music that goes on in it. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, very nice. Cool. Yeah. Which leads us to your next choice. Uh, yeah. What are we on? Are we on fourth or are we on fifth? We're on fourth. You're, you're fourth and then we go into the fifth. So I'm going to go for... Ah, yeah. So I'm going to go for... Ooh, which one? I'm gonna go for Diggable Planets, Rebirth yes. of Slicks. Um because I like it. This I is this it. is my favourite one of, of anyone's. I <laughs> I I adore this and I'd never heard it before. And I've yeah. I've fallen in love with the, these guys. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Diggable Planets are are a, 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 a rap trio um who were probably most well known in the early nineties. Mm. Um, two albums like Reaching a new, Refuti- a new Refutation of Time and Space which came out in 92 which Rebirth of Slick is from oh sorry Rebirth of Slick open parentheses cool like that close parentheses which <laughs> when said in a West Oxfordshire accent it obviously <laughs> doesn't quite convey the kind of cool like that cool like that Rebirth of Slick um, and then they did another they did another album of 1994 called Blowout Comb which is how I got introduced to them was Blowout Comb Okay. Which is very political, um, mm-hmm. uh, and is a phenomenal album. I, I, I mean, I think I prefer it to to uh, Refutation, which is the first one. But oh, sorry, Reaching, which is the first album. But um, for a song, 
Rebirth of Slick Cool like that is a great kind of example. And as a baseline, it's brilliant. Um, so it won, this one won the Grammy, similar to the um, Bella Fleck uh, song. This mm-hmm. won a Grammy, so underappreciated. Well, you, you know what the Grammys are like. It's a very weird. Yeah. Well, yeah, because there's about 50, 57 categories that you could win yeah, exactly. in. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, as I say, it was a, it's a trio. Uh, Ishmael Butler. Best uh, use of the spoons in a polka song goes to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Grammys are amazing. <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and this song, so the bass line is, uh, like many bass lines from the golden age of hip-hop, is sampled, and many bass lines from hip-hop in general, um, and it's sampled from a song called Stretching by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis Irwin, not the Man United and Wolverhampton Wanderers and <laughs> left back. But, that's entirely uh, who I thought you were. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I, I knew, and, and I know that, that is, that's right in your street with football because he was playing circa 1998. I knew that you would know that. I knew your ears would prick up on Dennis Irwin. Um, oh, I love so all no, those this 90s is, footballers. Yeah, you do really. Little kind of that. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> um, so it's a sample of it, but it's it's been manipulated. So for the for the Diggle Planets, it is slowed down, uh, and the Art Blakey and the Jazz Messages section, it's a very frenetic element, and it's just one section of a kind of wider bass solo that is being played. Um, and it, I mean, it's a good bass solo. Dennis Owen was, was a brilliant bassist as well. Um, but like uh, like a few of the other kind of picks that I made. One of the reasons why I picked this as well is because it's indicative of how hip hop uh, producers used bass, and uh, and mm. some of the best use of bass of the past thirty years has been done by hip hop producers. Mm. Um, and my favourite, personally, is like the golden age of hip hop that's typified by a lot of the jazz influenced people, not necessarily yeah. the people that like Dr. Dre, who who pretty much just lifted all the Parliament and Funkadelic albums and used them, or some of the other producers that lifted James Brown and used them. Uh, Diggable Planets and DJ Premier used a lot of, went back to jazz and just lifted a lot of the bass lines out of jazz. So, um, and a lot of those are my favourite kind of bass, um, my favourite kind of hip hop styles and songs. So, this is a really good example. Um, Shall we have a listen? Yes, have a little listen. Let's do it. Okay, Diggable Planets. an interesting period for hip-hop um because you had rakeem come along and change the style from that kind of run dmc grandmaster flash very much kind of spitting on the beat uh on the one and the three constantly and then you had people like Rakeem come in and and do like internal rhyming and all this stuff. And then you had people like Diggable Planets and 
early Jurassic Five and these and and these guys coming in in the early to mid nineties that really uh, uh, most deaf. He's one of my favorite hip hop artists. Also great actor as well. Yeah. Um, doing really interesting, different stuff, and then it felt like it that kind of sort of was was then overtaken by mainstream hip hop, which well, felt like it had more of a through line to, to, to the older eighties hip hop than actually. Yeah. So you had this interesting early to mid nineties period where there was some really experimental hip hop going on, but instead of that kind of expanding, it felt almost like that got kind of squashed by more mainstream late nineties hip hop being much more of a a follow on to 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 your eighties stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think. Gangster rap ruined a lot of stuff, really, with hip hop. Mm. I think, in, because I think what gangster rap did is, and I don't think this was the fault of gangster rap. I actually think this is the fault of white America and white yeah. executives. Is that they sold gangster rap to such an extent and it got so big that then people uh, automatically assumed that hip hop had to be gangster rap, so it had to be about bitches and bling and all that kind of yeah. hoes. Mm. And and as typified by like doggy style with Snoop Dogg and stuff like that. And yeah. then that became like a caricature of itself. Tupac and Biggie and all that kind of stuff. But as you say, all this was still all of the kind of jazz rap and all of the really interesting, more intellectual rap like Della Soul, Tribe Called Quest, Della Soul, yeah, all these kind of guys, Jurassic Five, as you say. I mean, just so many. They have always been there, and for me, they are what hip hop is really when it comes down to it. And um, they are just another interesting example of of, of the kind of things that um, hip hop artists wanted to talk to. A, a lot of them are, are, are coming from a slightly more quote unquote intellectual way but i don't really want to mm. do that but they they're talking a lot more about kind of certain uh issues from i mean some of them were, were relatively more middle class than compared to people like biggie and and what i mean Tupac was, yeah came from black Panther stock and mm. had an incredible kind of heritage really when it came to things but a lot of them weren't necessarily talking about the projects and the kind of in, or the project life and, and some of the ways that um other rappers are doing they were talking more about you know what it means to be black and blackness and afrocentric culture um, mm, yeah and i think dig will panics uh, are a really good example of that why they are not as big i am not 100 mm. percent sure actually because i don't really get why they are not as big as a tribe called quest in the mainstream i think perhaps it's because they didn't have a song like can you dig it although this is yeah. really the song i mean rebirth of slick was massive and is one of the you know in is 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 understood to be one of the best hip hop songs of all time, but perhaps it didn't transfer you know with the kind of longevity over to here, yeah. um, because I I found out from them from doing from just listening to other people I was never like turned on to them by some of the people that got me into hip hop, which is surprising when I think of it. So I I, I do wonder why they aren't as big, um, but I think it might be to do with their output isn't as they haven't done as much as some of the other people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this is a great example of just how uh, jazz bass has been used on to, on to rap albums and then just how brilliant it is. And it's just a great example of how good jazz bass is as well. Yeah. And it felt sure. like I, I couldn't really think of a jazz bassist to do. Like, mm. I was trying to think, I wanted to put a jazz mm. bassist in, but I couldn't really think of one to do that was underrated or underappreciated because... Yeah, I I was struggling with it, so I thought, well, I'm going to go to hip hop and see what I can get from that, and you know, great. see what I came out with. So I think it worked. Excellent, great chat, great example, and and also, you know, when you think about hip hop producers, and and you were talking about the use of bass, you're talking about an incredibly, you know, an industry where rhythm is king, um, especially when it comes to lyrics, and and but but rhythm driving the 
everything uh, rather than necessarily melody or anything like that. And I think that's one of the reasons why bass has been fostered so well in hip hop, um, mm -hmm. much like jazz, because it isn't necessarily about the tune, it's about the groove. And so if you spend long enough in that school, you're going to come, you know, come out with some incredible, solid, uh, smart rhythms um, on, on your bass. And that's a, that's a great example of it. Uh, yeah. I didn't recognise the track until it got to the cool like that bit. And yeah. I was like, oh, I do know this. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And then been, you've got that lovely, lovely jazz. It was, on, it was in Master of None briefly. It was mm. that. You watched that. Yes, yes, pop, yes. Pop stuff in that. Yeah. Cool. Lovely. Oh. Awesome. Well, we're on the home stretch. We are. Ladies and gentlemen. Awesome. Well, we, <laughs> <laughs> awesome, well. we uh, are. Yes, coming up to our final picks. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is a track that I have loved for a very long time, um, has now become synonymous with uh, a, a uh, just work of comedic genius. Um, <laughs> uh, but also taking that separately is uh, an incredible piece of orchestration. Um, I'm talking about Gary Newman's Music for Comedians. Um, <laughs> uh, Gary Newman and the Tubeway Army, I believe, specifically. Um, uh, 1982 release uh, from the album I Assassin. Um, and uh, the bass that you're hearing is a fretless bass. Uh, and it is a 1970 Music Man Stingray bass with an Aventide harmonizer. Uh, to be specific for all you uh, music tech nerds out there. 82. Mm. That's probably the most expensive instrument you can buy yeah. if it's made by music. Um, and, and, and it is played by uh, one of the greatest bassists of all time, uh, Giuseppe Pino Palladino. Um, oh, so, Pino! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so not only was he a bassist for Gary Newman, he uh, is the guy that took over uh, John Entwistle's job in The Who, played with him from 2006, kind of consistently to 2016 and now plays with them kind of on the odd gig. Um, uh, he played with the John Mayer trio, uh, he's with Nine Inch Nails, Jeff Beck, another guy that played bass with D'Angelo. Um, all of the Soul Quarian stuff. He yeah. Over all of it. They are insane. Yeah. Um, a, a absolute phenomenon. Um, now, of course, as I mentioned, most people uh, who may have heard this song have probably heard it from uh, season two of I'm Alan Partridge, <laughs> where Alan Partridge phenomenally plays air bass to the opening intro of this song. <laughs> um, so, good. so I think before we go any further, uh, we should allow everyone to live out their best Alan Partridge impression uh, as we hear the opening of Music for Chameleons. Envelope, not you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant piece of musical comedy. I I love this track. 
And I also just like Gary Yoon. We were watching something the other mm. day, and he's going, you act funny enough. It was on the Steve Coogan thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and I just said to you, oh, Gary Newman just makes anything better. Cool, it? yeah. And yeah. I don't know what it is. I, I think I, I remember having a conversation with you about it was, Gary uh, Newman. Uh, our Friends Electric, wasn't it? it was the our Friends Electric was the team, yeah. yeah. I remember having a, a chat with you uh, about Gary Newman, Josh, in a, in a chip shop in Whitney. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know why we were there. Probably hungry. Um, probably on a Thursday night, about or Friday morning at three o'clock in the morning on Friday after the Thursday night out. Probably. One of those situations. You ever say fried chicken? No, don't but know. I think there was. I think Gary Newman was playing like the O2 Academy or something. Right. I don't know why he would have been, but I think there was a poster in Smarts in Whitney, which okay. is a chip shop. I don't know, but I remember having a chat with you about Gary Newman, um, and me saying, "God, he really is a you know." A, quite brilliant guitarist isn't he and you being like yeah of course he is you idiot (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah his music is is incredible but often you forget uh again the musicians that are being surrounded by um when you think about paladino i was always aware that he played with like jeff beck and i know he'd done stuff with a who and i kind of thought yeah he's the rock guy yeah i had no idea about 90 percent of the the people he's played with he's he's the busiest bassist in rock and roll yeah Yeah. well because he's he's changed his bass style about three or four times like he's just unbelievably versatile because this is obviously very similar to the kind of fretless bass he did on Paul Young yeah Paul mm. Young stuff which he first is what he first got famous for which is a bit more of a kind of update a little bit of Jack Astoria's style I can't yeah. believe we've been doing this for over this is the first time we've mentioned the, first the, time we've the greatest bass player in history yeah. yeah yeah I think that's yeah, an achievement yeah yeah that's I'm yeah I think I'm quite proud of that actually um yeah and then he you know and then he's switched it up and and changed his style uh, quite a few different times really he's just amazingly versatile yeah i mean i i wanted to include this because i really wanted to talk about specifically the sound of a fretless bass because it it is different and it is unique and i forget josh which one of your tracks you chose but i'm pretty sure when i was I'm gonna look up of your tracks. One of them was a front space. I think, I think it's gonna. Yeah. It's is gonna it your your number one? Is it? So it's, yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, and 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 you can hear there is a distinct different quality of of a fretless space because it's 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 just that kind of rawness and you get that slightly less precise feel because you're you're going on kind of degrees of human error because you've got no fretboard to kind of help you. Um, that it just and yeah. those kind of smoother transitions is just really it's yeah. such a nice sound um, and so of, distinct. If you're being if you're being uncharitable, if you're being uncharitable, it can sound like a fart. Yes, um, yeah. I was, yeah, some people hate it. Not being yeah. uncharitable. Yeah, they do. They really do hate it. But because I love it because it makes it it, it almost mimics a kind of horn. Yeah, it sounds more <laughs> like a horn. So, especially in the kind of early '80s where it's a lot of it seems to be phased in and out with the volume. Yeah. Um, and you get a kind of kind of style. It's a bit more horny rather than necessarily horny. Um, <laughs> than necessarily yeah. cello. But yeah, lots of people, lots of people can't stand it because it's just partly but, because there's a bit of overkill and there's a lot of people who play it badly. Yeah. I mean, bad fretless is not good. Ult- ultimately, for me, I wanted to set myself the challenge of trying to find a song that is driven and anchored by a bass riff that isn't 
appreciated. Yeah. And that's that's kind of why I've left this one to last because I was like, yeah. I, I wanted to find a song where it op- and it is pure bass and it opens with totally bass and it's a really recognisable bass riff and yeah. yet it's still underappreciated. And I think because of the connotations of Partridge <laughs> and because it's, it's maybe, yeah, that there's, there's a kind of post-irony to this song now, it, it, I don't think it perhaps is given the credence it deserves as a song in its own right, which is kind of why I ended up choosing this one. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, I get that, definitely. I think, yeah, for sure, because I think there's a lot of kind of 80s bass playing, like Mark King for Level 42. Yeah, um, I was just about to think about, well, again, it's quite that, synonymous that with Partridge. Partridge. Yeah, that has some kind of similarities, like although he's a bit more slappy than necessarily uh, Pino, Pino was at the time, but no, I... I take that. I mean, because '80s pop is a was a was a phenomenal time for bass playing as well. One of the ones I was yeah. going to do was "Too Shy" by Kajagoogoo, yeah. which is another kind of amazing bass track. Um, so yeah, it's an, it's a really interesting period for bass guitar playing. It's good, uh, a good choice of track, and also I think credit to Pino if uh, if you can play any instrument whilst Gary Newman singing mm. and still shine, then that's quite a skill. Yeah. Because it's a bit Gary Newman. If someone's doing, <laughs> you know, and, you can, and you can still shine, then you're doing a good job. Uh, yeah. Pino so I read, I read a quick, I read a quick thing about this song. Yeah. Gary Newman apparently came up with the idea of this song while he was doing a around the world flight with Yes. Person. Yes. And he said, was flying his own aircraft. Like his co-pilot. And his co-pilot got so pissed off at him because it was the only thing he was singing. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine being stuck in a plane with Gary Newman, who by all accounts, you know, again, someone who was autistic, someone who was probably not necessarily difficult to be around, but by his yeah. own admission, is, has quirks. Yeah. Mm. Can you imagine being stuck in a plane with him, just humming or singing? And, but, also, yeah, but, but also, <laughs> it, it's a song that's very light on... The lyrics. So what bits he didn't play? Yeah, yeah. That's what I read. Like, is he just going sitting there yeah. for hours, going music for chameleons, and that, that over exactly and over again? What I was thinking because that's thinking exactly basically it. What is he singing to him? Like, <laughs> what, what, is the, what was the? What is the earworm? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There we are. Brilliant. If I ever meet, if I ever meet Gary Newman, that is just the only thing I'm going to ask him. Brilliant. You ask him. <laughs> Um, he's got a, a weird history with Joss Stone, though, so don't mention Joss. Um, but also, just before we head on over to Calum, and I think this might segue in quite nicely if I remember what your last track is, Pino Palladino is the only bassist on my list, uh, I think on, 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 on anyone's list for me, that I've actually seen live. Because Aww. I went and saw in 2008 The Who play at Ashton Gate Football Stadium in Bristol. And, of course, at that time, Pino Palladino was their bassist. So uh, I have seen him live play with The Who, and uh, we'll move over to Callum and see what your track is next. A wonderful segue, isn't that, David? Um, yes. Now, this I, I really struggled with this, and I know that both of you are going to have opinions over this, because uh, we're talking about underrated bass lines here, not just ones you really like. I've got another list of bass lines that I really like and that are also underappreciated that that, are, that I think are worth honourable mentions. But I I picked this one because personally it's something that I've really under underappreciated for a long time, and it's something that I've only recently really kind of got an appreciation for. And it's also something that I think other people underappreciate in, in more generally uh, in terms of the 
the particular song and the style of, of song it is by this band who have a, a huge back catalogue. Uh, the song I'm talking about is The Real Me by The Who, played by John Entwistle from the album, uh, I can't remember the name of the album, The Headless Children. Um, that's why I can't remember the name of the album, because everyone knows it from Quadrophenia. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, the reason I, I, I think I've uh, underappreciated this is because, and we talked about Pete Townsend a bit with our rhythm guitarists, right? Because Pete Townsend writes all the, all the parts, writes all the songs, uh, and then, you know, argues with everyone. And, and, um, and apparently him and Roger Daltrey haven't spoken for years, uh, written whole albums in completely different rooms, without even, not even recording it in the same room. Daltrey has his own engineer in his own <laughs> studio. And they don't even talk uh, before or after gigs. Um, but when we talk about the real me, I think this is a real example of what makes The Who special. And uh, I think it is a slightly underrated baseline because it's such a great vocal performance and the song itself is, is so huge. It sounds also a little bit like a traditional rock song, which is what Pete Townsend was always playing with, right? Taking the structure of a classic rock tune uh, and beefing it up and putting his own twist on it. Now, normally in a rock tune, you have uh, a, a quite typically a call and answer situation. Uh, a great example of this would be Robert Clark and Jimmy Page, where you've got a, and then you've got the guitar going, answering that with a, widdly, 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 right? It, that call and answer is there. You don't have that in the Who so much, partly because Pete Townsend isn't the greatest guitarist in the world, but, but the person who does that in the Who is John Enwistle, and he doesn't do it, uh, I think his finest job of that is in uh, the real me. You have I want to go to the doctor. All of that is on the bass rather than the guitar, and it drives it forward, but it gives it this dirty, dangerous feel, which um, I think is incredible. Now, needless to say, John Entwistle isn't an underrated bassist. He's known uh, very famously for being uh, innovative, extremely fast, uh, and for having very far too long epic solos in live gigs. Uh, anyone who's seen the, the Royal Albert Hall performance, the last one with Entwistle, uh, there's a camera on his headstock that they go to sometimes just to watch his fingers move. And it is impressive. And, and, um, but I also think people think of his... Uh, there are other songs that the Hill are more famous for, uh, Entwistle's bass parts. I think, Josh, you mentioned, you know, My Generation being a very famous bass line of his. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and this is one that goes by the wayside. The reason I didn't really get turned on to this track as a fantastic bass line before um, is because uh, I never w was listening to The Who that religiously. But a few years ago, I accidentally ended up singing for uh, a Who tribute band. And we did some a couple of gigs uh, in the UK. Uh, and I did some gigs in Holland, uh, which, by the way, is massive. They love uh, uh, their rock and roll. Um, and I said, like, as long as I have to wear a wig, it's great. Just turn up. Um, uh, uh, plug in and play uh, the songs as they were kind of recorded and it was a real joy um, the bassist I was working with Anna Lazar nominal uh, session bassist um, definitely uh, check out her work her fingers are as fast as any whistles um, and uh, yeah one of the great bass, bass um, players I've ever worked with um, and it just really yeah shone out to me what a clever tune this is we should probably have a listen yeah, yeah talk long it. enough here's the real me by the hey I went back to the 
yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a great choice. And, and I, I know what you mean, Josh, about, yeah, maybe it is more kind of, uh, certainly my generation is a more famous song and, and it is a great baseline on that. But I think what, what, what I love about this choice is it's actually quite a lot of isolated entwistle where it's where you, yeah. where you can pick out the bass kind of on its own and they leave him to it, which is actually quite rare in, in the who. He's 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 buried in the mix a lot of the time, uh, as brilliant a bassist as he is. It's it's kind of yeah. about Townsend's windmilling and Daltry screaming and obviously Keith Moon going all animal from the Muppets. And <laughs> you kind of enter whistle gets lost in the shuffle, I think, in a lot yeah. of Who tracks. So this is a really nice one to pick that you really actually hear just how good he was. Yeah. Yeah, well, because I think the story behind this is that he did it. This is a this is a first take, and he did he it did. As like he did it as like an indulgent laugh. It was this was meant to be a joke. <laughs> okay. So it was like it was like for, like like people do in first takes sometimes. Yeah. Guitarists do it when they do like solo guitar first takes. Is they'll get all the kind of wanky stuff out of their system. So yeah. They'll just try and get that out as possible and, and hope that the kind of novelty of that wears off, and then they try and do something a little bit more structured. But the fact of the matter, because I mean, this baseline is ridiculous. It's basically a solo the entire way through. <laughs> yeah. And um, but but you know when they heard it, Townsend and Daltrey and all the other guys were like, "No, that's really good. That really works. We'll keep it." <laughs> so it was like, "Ah, oh, okay then, no problem." Um, because I I think live, I'm not necessarily sure live if he ever really replicates the the, the baseline again. Mm. I, I can't be exactly sure, but I think you know it. Well, this very much was a kind of one-off that he thought he didn't think you know this was something that would be actually kept in song so that i think that lends itself to what you're saying david like about the yeah fact that it, it's not necessarily a typical or it's atypical of, of of a lot of the stuff he did with the who because he's not he's not sitting back you know because at the end of the day he was just uh just doing a solo for about yeah no i i take the point i think is that in that respect i think is actually quite a quite a nice song to listen to and you know what i hadn't really heard it before i i it didn't it didn't it didn't i didn't remember it when you said it cal to be honest real me and then i went back and listened to it and went oh it's that one from quadrophenia and i was like ah oh, yeah yeah that makes sense so um yeah i think it's good i think it's good nice marvelous yeah. well from one act i've seen live to i think the greatest uh live performance i've i've ever seen in my life uh josh yeah, so this is uh, my number, and this would be my number one pick as well. If we were grading yeah. them, this would sit at the top. And it is Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes by Paul Simon. Um, bass player. Now, I think it's it's either Bakiti Kamalo or Bakiti Kamalo. I'm not 100% mm-hmm. sure. I think it's Bakiti, actually. I think how you pronounce it. Um, he's the bass player on Graceland. He's the bass player on quite a few Paul Simon albums as well. Um... The reason why I picked this one, I mean, because to be honest, I'm not sure how underappreciated this is because the bass playing on Graceland is so famous. Mm. But I, I think it's more about the fact that the bass playing on You Can Call Me Out is more famous. Yeah. So I picked mm-hmm. this one because yeah. luckily I prefer it. And also it's not it's not You Can Call Me Out. So I think that's like a good thing. Um, but more specifically, it's not the version that is on the usual Graceland. It's the version that you can find on a few different things, but you can find on the 25th anniversary edition of Graceland. Okay. Uh, I think it's it's track 15, I think. So it's Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, and it's called like the alternate version, or it's called like the original version, or it's called the 
demo it's not demo version but i think it, it's got a few different names but basically <clears> it's not the one that begins with the ladysmith batman barzo um piece of, of choral work it's not, uh, it's okay not one uh. all it is is paul simon and bass that's it mm. and some backing vocals and it is absolutely masterful uh like some of the other stuff i've picked like norman what roy's playing on my man yeah mm, a lot like um bruce thomas is playing on every day i write the book it, the bass guitar is so prominent, but on this version, the bass guitar is all you've got in the vocals. Uh, it is absolutely phenomenal. It's, it's fretless bass again, yeah. Um, but it's just, uh, it's just masterful. Like, I remember the first time I heard it was uh, when I had Graceland, and I think I, ha- I, I think I bought the 25th anniversary version by accident. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I was intended to, so it must have been around about 2005 or no, 2011, I guess. 1986, I think Graceland was, so it must have been then. So I wasn't very, uh, I wasn't necessarily very young. I think I knew Graceland anyway. Um, yeah, and then I came across this version and was just pretty knocked out by it. And I think, I think this might be my favourite bass song of all time. Um, yeah. Anyway, just because I, just because it's, uh, I don't know, it's always stuck with me. Really, this, this, um, the bass playing on it. Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. Yeah. Say she's crazy, she got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Do you Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of your shoes. She was physically forgotten, but then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys. She said, You've taken me for granted because I please you. Wearing these diamonds. And I could say, as if everybody knows what I'm talking Great stuff. Uh, it, it is, it is, except I remember when I first heard Graceland, and my dad had a VHS tape of a concert, and I think it was a Central Park concert. It also yeah. felt like it might have been in South Africa, but I don't know. I was very young. I was, I it, might be the, it might be the South, there's a very famous South African concert they did. It could be that, but it, it could be. I'm, I'm not. I think he did a Central Park version, which is very famous. But I think the video was with the South Africa uh, uh, concert. Anyway, it, it is just phenomenal. But um, it was kind of a part of my dad telling me about apartheid, and, and he spent mm-hmm. some time in South Africa in the 70s and wanted to kind of talk about what you saw and and then he said and, and of course you know paul simon famously broke the the uh embargo um and, uh, and and created this music um with all these people from all over the world and, and it changed things for for lots of people and so i was kind of really excited to listen to what i thought would be um you know maybe political songs about you know equality and liberalism and all of that kind of stuff which you know to be honest knowing me i would have loved um but you get so much more than than kind of uh protest songs you get this incredible revolutionary cocktail of music and the fact that it was recorded both in new york and and in uh, cape town and and different and joburg or different parts of africa and it's such a melting pot 
is, it blew my mind actually, uh, listening to this album. It changed a lot of things for me. It made me look at things like an accordion in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. Certainly the first time I'd ever heard yeah. of fretless bass. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think a lot of people do think of Call Me Out as the bass song. Because of the, the breakdown, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is that it's yeah. in reverse, right? It's the retrograde bit. Um, but then this has got some really nice uh, solo stuff yeah. in the actual track, let alone the, the version we've just yeah. heard. Um, yeah, and and, yeah. and as I say, you you and I, Cal, lucky yeah. enough to see Paul Simon a couple of years ago at Hyde Park. And Hyde Park. for me, it's, it's, yeah. the, it's the best live performance I've ever seen, I think, in my life. I'm just blown away, blown away, even now at, 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 at kind of the age he is how long he's been doing it is just yeah phenomenal, phenomenal stupidly good and to have the wonderful steve gadd on, on drums there yes and, uh, yeah some, some great musos um uh with him um great great song song choice as well what a, what a tune marvelous yeah, brilliant tune. Brilliant tune. so that's our that's our 15 um so i know we've probably all got a few kind of honorable mentions we want to go through and then i know we're we talked about finishing off by just kind of saying, regardless of underappreciated or anything, what our favourite <laughs> ever bass line is in a song ever. But um, if we want to kind of do honourable mentions first, I think I've kind of run through all mine. The only other one I think I've not mentioned in the body of the podcast is uh, Long Train Running by the Doobie Brothers, because um, it's just a really funky driving bass line. But um, uh, yeah, so that probably might be my number six. But it just, I just edged it out because I think the, I think it's kind of there's the reason it's underappreciated is because the the rhythm guitar part in that song is so good and it kind of deserves to be the most memorable thing about that yeah. song. So I was kind of yeah. like, yeah, the bass is kind of where it is in terms of people's recognition of that, even though it is really good. Um, yeah. But uh, and, and yeah, but yeah, as I said, also talk talk about everything, every little thing she does, and um, yeah, looking at quite a few, uh, talk about Manny. I was looking at quite a few Primal Scream tracks from the kind of Manny years and things like that. Um, uh, yeah, just, uh, um, kind of lesser known New Order ones as well, Peter Hook, and yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know what anyone else has in terms I, of uh, honourable mentions. Yeah. Um... I think nearly, I nearly chose Love Cats by The Cure mm. Mm. because that's a fantastic bass line that's yeah. quite prominent, but also quite hard to shine as a bass player when you've got Robert Smith, you know, leading the band. It's iconic and it's visual and it's melodic. Great band, The Cure. I think they're just generally underrated in general. I think they're really, really good. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And really important band. And, and yeah, bass part's amazing. Uh, I, I, I kind of... the. The tune gets on my nerves because I hear it so much, but I think Town Called Manus by The Jam, that's a great bass line. It is. I yeah. I would argue that that isn't underappreciated. Yeah. Uh, I would argue maybe, that yeah. that is a very well-known bass line, although people might be thinking of Can't Hurry Love by Phil Collins. Uh, well, this is the same bass line. Yeah. Can't Hurry Love by Phil Collins is a cover, remember? Yes. Yeah. I think what makes Town Called Manus clever is that it homages... An old, an early '60s tune mm. at the beginning, and then when it comes into the verses, suddenly you're in a minor key, and, and music yeah. is quite yeah. interesting, and it's and it's a, a lot busier than you think. But the actual ding 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 That's the Bo Diddley beat, I think. Yeah, is it Bo Diddley? 
I mean, yeah. well, it's the Bo, it's the Bo Diddley beat, yeah, which we, I think we we touched on it briefly in the rhythm guitar bit. I, think I mean, dum 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 bit is that on that on 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 that subject again? It, I, I I veered away from this because I don't think you could say it's underappreciated. But are you going to be my girl by Jet? Also uses that, that thing, yeah, um, exactly, yeah. And, and yeah. another great bass track. Uh, yeah. One thing that really did nearly make it was "Bullet in the Head" by Rage Against the Machine. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's an awesome, awesome bassline. I love that one. E7, yeah, it's quality. Because it's, it's. I mean, it's such yeah. a. You, you can hear it. Yeah. It's really prominent. Uh, yeah. Tom Morello's quite rela- quite slack in that actually. Yeah. Um, and you've got yeah this that chord. Um, yeah. Uh, E7 is it? Yeah. The, yeah. How often do you hear chords played in the bass? That's a that's a great shout. Actually, uh, 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 wake up as well. I would say. Um, and take take the power back. Yeah, we could do a rage oh, podcast actually. Could yeah, I mean, I mean, rage's bass lines are so good. Um, yeah. And then also very nearly one of your favourite basses. I nearly went for free and all right now, which is a very famous <laughs> song, but a really good bass yeah. line with a nice little solo in it, but not a lot of people go, oh, what an incredibly, because it's, it's probably one of his easier bass lines, right? Well, interesting you should say that, because Mr. Big by Free was almost in mine as well, which is uh-huh. an amazing bass line. Uh, yeah, no, all right now is really good, um, because it's deceptive as well, because he plays like a chord, he plays chords in that as well, and he was only like 16, so there you go. And really? he wrote Annie wrote the songs, yeah. Andy Fraser is mental. Yeah, when 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 Free when Free got first set up and big, yeah, I think he was only sixteen and he'd just come back with John Mayer and the Blues Breakers, so he was fifteen when he was playing with them. And then he was the main songwriter for Free. And by the time they split up, I think he was only twenty. So and and he wrote all the songs pretty much. Like Paul Kossoff, Paul uh, him and Paul Rogers are credited on most of the ones, and then Paul Kossoff, the guitarist, is is on as well but Mr Big would have been in my in, was in mine as well because the bass line fits beautifully like the guitar is playing like this rhythm section and the bass yeah. is just amazing like dum 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 and then he does like a three minute bass solo at the end so <laughs> I, I I Mr Big went in and out of my selection about five times yeah um, but yeah definitely Andy Fraser is a very underappreciated bassist I think I, I, yeah, I think he, his work was brilliant any other any other tracks that nearly made it that didn't so ones. many uh, my my track so i'll just i'll very quickly run down all the ones that i put in brackets underneath my selections because yeah. they all moved around so nick begs nick begs from kajagoogoo for two mm-hmm. sides was, mm-hmm. was a big one that went oh, in and, yeah. and, and and almost made it on um uh chris lowe from pet shop boys for west end girls uh, yeah because it's an absolutely brilliant baseline again played on a synth obviously but i was gonna say yeah 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 it was another brilliant one uh, a person who is possibly one of the most underrated bass guitarists of all time, Colin Greenwood from Radiohead, mm. who, like, is an amazing bassist. But the only reason he didn't go in, I don't really know why he didn't go in, actually, on my list. I think I struggled a little bit. Well, I think I was a bit clouded by the fact that Tom York has written some of the bass lines that I wanted to put in. But mm-hmm. for, for a bassist that sits in the pocket and plays what needs to be played, Colin Greenwood is one of the best there has ever been. And is criminally underrated, I think, as a musician, because of the other people that are in Radiohead. Right, um, yeah. So I think he would have gone in, and I probably would have picked 15 Steps for that amazing run that exists in 15 Steps. Oh, um, such a good Yeah, it's good. Tune. Yeah, there's some really good stuff there. And because things like National Anthem from Radiohead, Tom York wrote. Mm. Um, so I, but yeah, he was close. Tony Levin, Peter Gabriel's bassist, 
Um, uh, yeah. Um, King Crimson. I was tempted to put him in as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd also just say in terms of Radiohead, um, the bass part on Talk Show Host is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. I thought about that too. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And then who else? Oh, loads. So Pino Palladino. One more. One more gin, which is from. Um, D'Angelo, yeah. uh, Voodoo, that would have been in, but because we had him already represented and we kind of had some other kind of new neo soul jazz stuff I thought we didn't need. Yeah. Uh, Fred Smith from television, absolutely amazing, but I, yeah. I already have post-punk, so we didn't need him in. Jerry <laughs> Gemma, who was a bassist and played a lot of stuff with Aretha Franklin and is from the same kind of James Jameson era. I had him in. His um, People should check out his playing on the live version of The Wait that Aretha Franklin did. Yeah. Phenomenal bass playing. Really good. Uh, Andy Fraser. Eric Avery, James Addiction's bassist, was a big one. Uh, so many. Jack, Ca Actually, Jack Cassidy from Jefferson Airplane as well. Oh, no great shout. No inkling that Jack Cassidy was a good bassist, or I never mm -hmm. thought about it. But he influenced lots of people like Bruce Thomas as well. So Bruce Thomas has credited Jack Cassidy for That's a lot of his style. And, 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 di and diving into some of the stuff he did with Hot Tuna, which is the band mm. that him and John McCalkinen did after Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, um, I think Cassidy also introduced him to Bruce Lee movies as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 I think that's true. I think it's when they get together. Um, yeah, and that was it basically. Uh, Raphael Sadiq as well, but I mean, so many. And Maloko. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Maloko, the time is now. That baseline pops. It's yeah, so that's true. Um, I I don't know who the bassist is, but one that just popped into my mind is uh, Donna Summer. I feel love. She's yeah, a, well, I'm, I'm assuming that would be Giorgio Moroder doing it on a. On a, on a synth, yeah. Synth, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, if we're going to talk about synth-based parts, yeah, you've got to talk about Giorgio Moreda. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm now thinking about tracks yeah. like Can Heat, um, Jamiroquai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was close. I think, Stu uh, is it Stuart Turner or Peter Turner? I can't remember the name of the bassist. Yeah, Jamiroquai, absolutely amazing bass player. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and that's why Maloka almost made it into there, because there was that kind of jazz... Thing that came out, like the acid jazz thing that came out in the late nineties, early noughties, had some yeah. acid jazz playing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dave, yeah. what are you, what's your all-time favorite? Here we go. So, regardless of underappreciated, this is this is it, guys. This is it. These are the three greatest bass tracks in the history of music, and this is undisputed because the three of us are saying it, and that's it. That's it now. <laughs> so, you know, cue. Rolling Stone. Yeah, well, does Q still exist? I think they got. I think they folded. No, it's just. I think it's just stopped, doesn't it? Has it? It, it was about. Oh no. Or did Mojo stop? One of them. Yeah, Q stopped. I think. I think Mojo's still okay. going. I think Q stopped. NME. Mojo's the only one. Yeah. Whoever you are out there, no, you don't need to do any lists anymore. Watch Mojo. <laughs> what culture? Don't need to do any little lists on YouTube. Right. This is it. We're 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 finishing it now in terms of bass parts. And this is going to be it forever. Right. My all-time favourite bass track ever, and, and this is as much steeped in kind of uh, personal nostalgia as it is the actual proficiency of uh, the bass, although I think it is a phenomenal bass part and uh, ridiculously difficult to play. Um, and it is Hysteria by Muse. Um, I think uh, Chris Wollstone Home is one of the most phenomenal bassists of all time. They 
uh, architect so much of their music around his bass playing. He's created that sort of crunchy style um, that, again, is immediately recognisable. Um, but for me, I it's it's tied up a lot in very early memories of live music as a teenager. It was pretty much, I think, the first gig I ever went to. I was about 14, 15, and I was at a pub in Bath called the Porter Butt. And my friend Jamie Bird, who was in my year at school, his band Tangent Eye were playing, and they did covers. <laughs> oh, yeah, Tangent Eye. And... And they were doing all these covers. And now I don't think that so, so this would have been right around just when um, Absolution had come out. So I don't think I'd heard this song yet. I, this is my first memory of hearing Hysteria was my mate's band playing it. Um, they were lucky enough to have an insane bassist, a guy called Adam Nolly Getgood, who moved to... <laughs> Yeah, who moved to America and is now the bassist for prog rock, uh, prog metal band, I should say, Periphery. Uh, they pioneered the uh, D-Gen sound. Um, they have been Grammy nominated and they open for Dream Theater all the time. And he's actually oh, awesome. genuine. Yeah, he's like a legit huge bassist. But what I will say, it, yeah, he's got 100,000 followers on Instagram and stuff. Um, and um, he still professionally goes by the name Adam, quote unquote, Nolly, get good. And he, so he was in the year above me. So he's a man of, of 34, 35 now. And he's called Adam Nolly, get good, because he came to my school a little bit late in like year 10. And he's called Nolly because there was another guy in the year that looked quite a lot like him called Ollie. So Nolly is short for not Ollie. And that's still his nickname in his mid-30s. <laughs> <laughs> which I really enjoy. Um, but yeah, I just have this memory of hearing him suddenly playing and just being like, what's happening? I didn't know this instrument could play that. It was like the first time I was even aware of the bass being an exciting instrument that could stand alone apart from just being in the mix of a, of, of, of a sound of a band. Um, and it was like my first mosh pit. It was my first time getting properly drunk, I think. And like mm. just, yeah, so yeah. many memories tied up with that. Um, so yeah, so that's why that's my choice. And also it is just an insane bass part. Great. Al? Oh, so, I mean, there are also lots of other things we haven't mentioned and talked about. Um, John Deacon, incredible bassist often underrated even though he's very famous for being uh, in queen Qu queen wouldn't be what it, what it is without without john deacon's incredible bass lines so things are under pressure great um i think one of my all-time favorites is give it away by Mel chili peppers um yeah i mean flea is certainly not underrated but you know phenomenal um i think though the baseline that gives me the most joy whenever i hear it no matter when i hear it is Play That Funky Music by Wild Cherry. Excellent. Nice. Excellent. 1976. I mean, it's hard because the bass line's playing pretty much the same thing as the guitar, which is yeah. the main riff. Bum, bum, it, bum, it's bum, also bum, very bum, much superstition, isn't it? With a couple of notes changed. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, there, there's a, a, a big similarity there. Um, but yeah, it's, Wild it's Cherry's easier excellent. to... Funky Music's easier to play. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> 
<laughs> but Alan Wentz is the basis for Wild Cherry at this point, then quite a few different members. Um, uh, it just brings me absolute joy. Nice little opsy of junk, uh, jump, yeah. and it brings me brings me loads of joy. Um, also, just we haven't mentioned Sly yet, and you, you can't really talk about any of any mm-hmm. of this funk stuff without talking about Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. Um, I was going to pick out a point of this, and uh, I think pro- probably a good example of uh, the family's kind of base bass lines and making songs a lot better than they are or, or would be without those bass lines. Um, I want to take you higher. I think is a really good example mm. of that. Um, but yeah, my favourite bass line of all time. Play that funky music, Wild Cherry, played by Alan Wentz. Nice, nice, nice. Joshy uh, boy. Yeah, I thought of If You Want Me To Stay, actually, by Sly and the Family Stone. Mm. Um, and then I thought of Bernard Edwards' Chic, Good Times. Mm. Oh, um, yeah, Good Times, yeah. Yeah, I've, I just, there's just so many. And to be honest, I, I couldn't really think of anything. So oh, Crossroads by Jack Bruce. Yeah, all of that. I thought uh, Politician by Cream. I really love Politician. Mm. Very weird. Yeah. Really good. Uh, and then I got a little bit annoyed about the fact that I couldn't think one. And then I got a bit frustrated about the fact that I couldn't think one. <laughs> one. So I went for a run and I put <clears> Joni Mitchell and I put, and the first song on Joni Mitchell's album, Hijira, which is Coyote with the, uh, with the Amazing Bay, with Jack of Pistorius. And I thought, oh, oh. quit. Fuck it, we're going to put Jacko in. <laughs> I knew it would be. I knew it would be. Um, because, I mean, Jacko Pistorius, who is the bassist bassist, yeah. the greatest bassist, the greatest electric bassist there's ever been. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Portrait of Tracy yeah. transcends bass guitar. I was going to put that in, but that's a piece of music. I mean, that's not a bass line. That's... Yeah that's so far above and in 1976 i mean what he did in 1976 alone his recording output was amazing he had the we- he had weather port i think birdland came out in 76 he did pat Metheny's bright size life which is a phenomenal album his playing on that is unbelievable and then he just met Joni mitchell and she went yeah i'd like to get you and i'll do some stuff so he did his jira i think did the hissing of summer lawns as well um but he did hijira i think he did four tracks on hijira Black Crow is a phenomenal um, example of his bass playing, but Coyote is just beautiful. It's a driving, it's got the Joni Mitchell driving acoustic guitar that she's playing in it. Uh, Jacko uses his harmonics in a really, such a nice tuneful way. And then it's got the fretless bass driving it as well. Uh, I don't think it's the best, I'm not sure if it is the best bass line of all time, but I think uh, that has stuck with me, I think, because I am, I think I said in the last podcast, I'm relatively new to Joni Mitchell, mm. um, but Hajira, I, I got into Joni Mitchell through Jack of Pistorius. That was kind of what gave, right. made me give her a bit more of a chance because I just <laughs> knew Joni Mitchell from both sides now and Big Yellow Taxi, which are great, but that's not really my vibe necessarily is kind of the Laurel Canyon um, folk scene. It's, yeah. not, it's, it's not a favourite thing in the world, uh, apart from some of the songs. So... Uh, her jazz stuff is kind of what I've really got into. Uh, I have massive appreciation for her now. I think she's very intelligent. And yeah, and I think Coyote is just a wonderful example of his bass playing. Um, so really? I think that would go in. And I mean, there's so many others to pick from as well, but I think to have Jacko in there is, is, is worth it. Yeah. So uh, he would be, that would be my pick. Also, actually, another one of his as well is Come On, Come Over from his debut album, which is the one that Sam and Dave sing on. That bass mm-hmm. line is insane as well. But no, I'm sticking with Coyote from Joni Mitchell. 
I mean, isn't it amazing that a bass player can do an album, a solo album, and be the star of that and be the selling point of that and also have Sam and Dave singing on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how well respected the is. Actually, on, on that, for that song alone, you also had the Becker twin, the Brecker brothers on horn, Dave Sanborn on horn as well. Uh, who drummed? I don't know. If, I can't remember exactly who drummed on it, but a very, very famous jazz drummer as well. Like insane, and he came almost out of nowhere and was, you know, everywhere for a few years, and then had a very tragic life, like very yeah. tragic end to his life, massive undiagnosed mental illnesses, and then you know died after he got beaten up outside a club. Yeah, died and basically died homeless in 1983. So in seven years, he went from having a year almost unheard of in terms of uh, the output that he was doing to you know to being dead and destitute essentially. And I think you know it's really really sad that he was never able to do that, but. Uh, he shone, to use that old uh, adage, he shone briefly but brightly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When it comes down to it. I know we've, we've got to wrap up, but I was just thinking when you were saying this about, about Hajira and about the stories on that album, I, I, to be honest, I'd forgotten that he played on that album, but, uh, uh, but I think one of the reasons why it stands out, even if it isn't particular, like you say, is it the best bass lines in the world? Or not, but I always forget that Joni herself plays weird chords. She yeah, doesn't. She yeah, tunes yeah. the guitar weirdly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. so you you can play a relatively simple bass part to a Joni track, and it, you're still not replicating any of her root notes because she's playing weird chords. And and so maybe that's why it's so kind of uh, kind of weird and beautiful and and jazzy. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think I think it complements it perfectly because she's not. Her chords are always quite weird. They're normally like the tunings normally make her chords into minor eleventh chords that are quite. Amp- but there's a there's a certain element of ambiguity to them. Mm-hmm. And like I was saying before, normally in music there needs to be some almost some kind of like sexual orientation in terms of whether it's major or minor and things like that because the ambiguity there needs to be a something needs to supply a resolve almost or needs to send lend it a sense of direction. Otherwise, it can be a little bit directionless. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes that's really good, but I think Jack of Stories' bass playing and a lot of Hajira's example of it underpins some of the kind of ambiguity that is laid down by Joni Mitchell's rhythm playing, um, as well as her being very rhythmic. So that's why I think she's brilliant. Like, as a rhythm guitarist, on, she almost made it uh, on my list in the end. And I think that uh, it's always nice to hark back to her. I'm, 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 I listen to her so much now that I think naturally I'm just quite drawn to, to, to what to that kind of musicality that she displays there. So always brilliant. a good excuse for Joni, always a good excuse for Jacko. Brilliant. There we are. We've made it. We did it. We did it. Well, thank you very much, Josh, uh, for joining us once again. And uh, yeah, we're going to have you back in a few weeks when we delve into the incredible world of 2004 uh, and we talk about our favourite albums of that year. I I think, as we said last time, I think there's going to be some punches thrown about this one. I think there'll be some punches thrown and also... your punches aren't going to land. <laughs> because I know that I'm winning. Oh, it's not right. a competition, but I know I pick the best. So yeah. I mean, yeah. you've got a good point there. I, I think also it's just going to be an exercise in how much do we want to say about our teenage lives on air. I know. <laughs> I think it's I'm so, enjoying it's that. So, it's so evocative. Like, we, well, Callum and I were like 14, and then, like that was like the second year I went to Glastonbury as well, as a 14 year old. I just forgot so much of the music that was around it. And also, what the shit that we used to listen to in 2004, I'm going to be happy to be talking about some of the albums that definitely would never make 
best list of 2004, but uh, we're all listened to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, it's a great request, though. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah um, Marvelous. Well, all right then. We will see you for that in a few weeks' time, Josh. Yeah, and looking forward to it. Marvelous. In the meantime, uh, if anyone out there has any questions, uh, comments. Uh, suggestions for uh, your own kind of best baselines. Should Rushes by Darius have been in there? Probably because it should be in every list of that music <laughs> ever made. Um, yeah. uh, then you know where to get in touch with us. You can give us a tweet uh, at Macabre Podcaster. You can drop us an email, podcastermacabre at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, fb.me forward slash podcastermacabre. And do, of course, please like, share, and subscribe on Google Play, iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. In the meantime, I've been Callum Hughes. I've been David Shopland. And I've been Josh Benson. See you later. Bye. Weakness, I'm totally addicted to bass. Wow, wow.